Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close... You can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls because I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give them the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like them. I'll just have Yanni use his. Then I'll have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light. Go farther, stay longer. Okay, we're joined today by Ya Yang. Ya. Yes, sir. Love that name, man. Thank you. Did, did kids goof on your name a lot when you were a kid? Ya Yang? Ya? A little bit, a little bit. I just tell them it's, it's pretty Minnesotan, so you know, I, got, <laughs> I got that. My joke is that when, you know, when we came to the country through the immigration, they couldn't pronounce my name. My, my name in Hmong is actually Ja. They couldn't pronounce it, so whoever was there was just like, all right, let's just let's just do ya, Y-A, and be done with it. Huh. That's, that's, well, at least that's my story. I yeah. don't know if that's true or not, but. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not striving for equivalency here, but I'll point out that there was a, in my family name, did I talk about this recently? There was a split in how they spelled it. The A and the I. Yeah, the A and the number of N's and everything and the I. I have an article where, I think I was talking about this, where my dad's uncle hit a cop hit a cop car he was italian and the i in in little italy like in south side of chicago italians and irish guys didn't like each other my dad said you simply could not go to the irish neighborhood they'd kill you his uncle hits a irish cop named philip toomey who's off duty toomey goes home and gets a gun and comes back and kills my dad's uncle i still have the newspaper clipping Wow. Um, and, and my dad would show me the article, his point being how the Ranellas spelled their, so <laughs> the Ranellas who are family members in the articles have different spelled names. Oh, but he's like, but it's the same. They're like family. brothers. 
You know what I mean? It's yeah. funny. Um, so Ja. Yes, sir. Yeah, you, you said it perfectly there. Yeah. Ja. But when you but you don't do that. Does your fam? What does your dad call you? Or your mom or dad? Uh, or? My our, my family calls me Ja. I see. Yeah. But you just make it easy on everybody else. Yeah. I, I, yes. Yes, sir. I do that. <laughs> it's like Janice and Giannis. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, Corinne, of course, Phil's got a haircut scheduled tonight. That's his, right. His, um, <laughs> it's getting down in his eyes. He had to do a little head flick. Yeah. Yeah. I was telling you before the podcast that I, I judge, I, I judge when I get my haircut, like the timing of it based on when you start making fun of me. I know yeah. that that's about the right time. So. Yeah. I like to keep it high. I like to keep the hair high and tight here in the studio. <laughs> it's really strict. It's... <laughs> Seth's here. Howdy. Uh, tell everybody, you don't need to tell where you went, but tell everybody about your big fishing trip, Seth. I wouldn't call it a big fish. This will interest yeah. This will interest yeah because um, these will be these will be fish species he's familiar with as a Minnesotan. Yeah, I was I was fishing a body of water um, in Montana this weekend that I fished before, and you and, typically and, uh, an impoundment on a large river. Yes, <laughs> you typically do well in the spring with with smallmouth in there. But uh, I hit it a little too late, and uh, they moved off their beds and hmm. deeper. And I just haven't figured them out this time of year yet. But you hit it the same time last year? No, earlier last year. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, but the suckers were spawning. The water was clear, and I could see them. I'm not talking about that fishing trip. I'm talking about the other big fishing trip. Oh. <laughs> oh, that one. Yeah, four peck. Not afraid to tell about that one. Where's that? She's off the size of Indiana. <laughs> Everyone knows, yeah. <laughs> No, yeah, uh, Memorial Day weekend. How many miles? That, we, it's hundreds of miles long. 130 or something yeah, like that. More, yeah. more shoreline than California. And and I think... Bullshit. No, seriously, look it up. You want to hear a good little fact like that? Um, Prince of Wales Island mm-hmm. has half the land mass of the big island in Hawaii, but something like four times or... There's much shoreline. Really? Because all those fjords and yeah. coves and jaggedy ass shorelines. Um, yeah. Four pack, amazing fishery. Walleye fishing was tough at first. Um it's like we'd pick up one or two during the day, but uh we kind of figured out in the evenings they were sliding up on those hard breaks. Sliding up there. Yeah. Just sliding right <laughs> up there. Uh <laughs> to feed in the evenings, they were going up shallower. We would we would catch them pretty good. Um, and wh- when you guys are doing that, what do you, so you're camping out fishing. Yep. What are you guys doing with your, uh, with your fillets? That's what they say in England. Uh, we just put them in a the cooler. Keep them, keep them cool. Just gutted whole fish or you're filleting fish? No, we're filleting fish. And then yeah. putting them in a cooler. Yep. Um, and then just come home and then deal with them all. Mm-hmm. Come you guys, home. You guys frying fish while you're there? Uh, we, no, we didn't. We didn't while we were there. What other kind of species did you catch? Um, drum, catfish. You caught freshwater drum? Yep. They're in there? Yeah. Caught one. That's a rubbery fish. I caught one last year. You ever flay one of those? Yeah, I did. I didn't this year. I did last year. You flay them and you think you're in for a treat. They're beautiful. My mm-hmm. dad used to cook them, but they're like gorgeous flays. Yeah. They look like they taste good. Man, I fried. And they're they're the like one. a little springy. It's like they make that noise when you're chewing them. They make the noise that a cheese curd makes. Yeah. <laughs> like, you, like you generally don't want your fish to go. 
when you're chewing it. Yeah. It squeaks on your teeth, man. Yeah, I, where I grew up, there, people were way more interested in the rock in their head than uh, than eating them. Yeah, they have a blow. They have a large version. What is it called? It's that ear, not the old. Yeah. Oh yeah. Odolith. Yeah. What the hell's that word? Odolith. It's just a souped up version of Odolith, right? Yep. You make little earrings out of it for your wife and stuff. Oh, I didn't know that. Corinne, that'd be a good little thing for you to get into, man. Hell yeah. Because you like it... making animal part jewelry. You need to catch yourself a big drum. <laughs> I think I do. Are are these like those kind of like uh, little parts that mimic like orochette pasta? Like that, like a little thumbprint, yep, like exactly. curve thing? Exactly. Yeah. You find them yeah. washed up on the beach yep, sometimes. Yep, yep, My yep. brother had some, because uh, yellow-eye rockfish have some biggins. And my brother had some kind of jewelry made for his for his woman, his wife, Juanita. Yeah. Nice. One of the many fish called sheephead. Did you did you flay it out? No, I put that one back. Hmm. Um we caught some pike. What'd you do with those? Flayed them. Threw some back, but I mean we caught a lot of pike. What'd you guys do with all the Y bones on your pike? Um I I actually didn't take any pike flays. Do you like pickled? That's Rick Hutton. He Rick caught a. I think his biggest was thirty five and a quarter. Oh, big old fat gut on that thing. Wow. Yeah, it was big. Does he does he make pickled pike? Um, he typically doesn't, but he. I think he's going to try to this year. He took back a bunch. Yeah, bunch you ever of hear of pickled pike? Yes, I've had that because it dissolves the bones out. Yep, that was one of yeah. the greatest discoveries I ever made, man. I not that I made. It. I mean, you know, what I'm saying, ever learned about. Yeah. Uh, when I was a kid, my old man would buy pickled, um, you know, for Christmas. I don't know why. Like, I don't know where this is a thing. Pickled herring or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Creamed like, herring yeah. or something yeah. for Christmas, like right? the Eastern European. Yep. yep. I don't my know how he got that. onto that. But then he learned how to make uh, <clears throat> he learned how to make it out of pike. With the sour cream and shit mm-hmm, or not. Mm-hmm. And he would make huge jars of that now and then. But you got to get on it. You can't let it linger in your fridge for a long time. As soon as it starts getting cloudy in there. How do you flay a pike? Well, you ever see Miles Mache do it? No. <laughs> okay. Do you do like the five? No. Like the five fillet method? No. no. I have. I don't like it. So, all through growing up, we would just flay them like you flay it. Take the flay off, like, rib, like ribs a normal, off. normal fish, and then you cut it into like a three. Then you cut the how if, if it's a big pike, you cut it laterally, and then they got two big long strips. Yeah. And then we would take a flay knife and cut about every cut through it, almost all the way through it, every, the same way, like the, the carp way, the carp preparation. Mm-hmm. Yep. So you take a piece that's like, let's say the size of like three of your fingers put together in your hand. Like if you peel your pinky and your thumb away, I got big like banana fingers, but <laughs> if you peel your pinky and your thumb away, that. The three fingers. Yep. And then every quarter or third of an inch or so, you cut almost through it. The tail piece is bone free, so always like... Yeah. And then you fry that, and the, and the little bones kind of cook out, you know? Hmm. But now what I do, that's what we used to do. Now what I do is I take the flay off, and I take the tail piece off, and I'll freeze the tail piece as just regular fish, and then I'll take the bone-in pieces and make fish cakes or pickled pike. Gotcha. Um, Miles Mache, he can very quickly, um, if it's chilled nice and easy to work with, he just debones that some bitch. Yeah, Bunch I got to cuts. where I could get that strip out. 
pretty good. Yeah, but but it, I, it's like it's like as John McPhee when John McPhee was writing about uh, cleaning American Shad, he just he uh, equated it to fixing someone's watch. It's like um, it's like that kind of work to to get that yeah. bone line. But my, that's what my brother does. Yeah, it's um, not bad on was, the big ones. Yeah, I was like watching videos on the the five like they call five it, they, finger exploding heart pipe like, trick. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> they call it that, but no, the they say it's like the five you get the five boneless fillets off of a pike and just Oh yeah. You cut into the back, yeah. cut along the back. Bone. I did that and it just did not nah, work. Like skinny been. strips. No, it no, it's like you cut you get, like lay it on its belly and like go in behind its head and come out. I already don't You like take it. the tailpiece off, the boneless tailpiece off. Yeah. This I just lost a dollar bet to Spencer Newharth because we have the tailpiece of a common carp. And I said, the tailpiece doesn't have Y bones. He says, that's not true. They go all the way. And I was like, no, they don't. And we took a tailpiece and cut into it six pin, six bones. Like he's got Y bones to the bitter end. But on a pike, they peter out yeah. at the dorsal fin. Yeah. Anyhow, um, we went morel hunt last night and me and me and my, all my kids and Brody and his kids and uh, we're stomping around for a while. <laughs> and we finally find some, and my, my little six-year-old looks. He goes, <laughs> "This is." You find some rel. We find him rel. He goes, "I saw one of those earlier." <laughs> yeah. And what did he say after that? He said, "I thought it was a beehive." <laughs> I was like, "I got to see this rel. If it's as big so, as a beehive." No, I'm not kidding. And earlier, he had got tangled up in a little briar patch, and I and he was whining and moaning about being stuck in a briar patch. And I said, "Was it before or after you got stuck in that briar patch?" He says this was before that. I go back to that briar patch and start kind of backtracking where he came from, and there's a morel sitting. <laughs> I saw one of those earlier. <laughs> that's hilarious. I was impressed you oh, found that's it. So, so good. <laughs> uh, yeah, but we ended up. Uh, we did good. Yeah. A couple dozen, I'd say. We had, you know, um, well, my wife just came up with a new hashtag for me, which is keep tinkering. But um, <laughs> we uh, which is uh, but we got back to the truck, and there's like a place where if you parked and went looking, you wouldn't look because too obvious. I'm not giving too much away to say it's right by the dumpsters, yeah. <laughs> like by the dumpsters. Yeah, it's like it's just too obvious. Like you would never look there. Like you park, and you never be. It's just like a weird little pocket. And we got done and and then just kind of got checking around the dumpsters. Doubled our take in about 10 minutes. Oh, wow. Nice. What do you the think, old dumpster spot. What, you know, what is there like? They grow in tight association. Off. Yeah. I mean, what's some, that? Like what's, what kind of matter is found right by the it dumpster? Had, no, it had they... all the attributes. They did, they, these morels weren't keying in on dumpsters. Oh, okay. It had okay. all okay. the attributes. Okay. It was like, okay. or, like we're after the... I don't know. I, I think this is more rigid than it is, but uh, do you hunt morels, yeah? No, I don't. Do you hunt any kind of wild mushrooms? No. Really? Um, uh, we used to think it was like, there's you know, there's different species. So there's Morcella esculenta, which is like, uh, translates to like delicious morel mm-hmm. or whatever the hell. <laughs> and we did, there's like Morcella conicus and all. And I used to think the world is very clean and it's like, oh, that's a this and that's a that. Mm-hmm. I might be wrong, but my understanding now is that it's like you can't just run around declaring this morel that and that mm-hmm. morel that. Okay. Like, I was like, going to ask you if, I, like, the ones we're finding are kind of a light tan. If my they're understanding. Darker, like in burn areas, do they look? They're cone. Oh. Yeah. Then you go to the burns. 
sometimes sometimes you do get those those round topped big yellow bastards and burns but my understanding i could be wrong is just like it's like morcella esculenta maybe is that big ass yellow river bottom morel that associates with dead dying damaged whacked out cottonwoods mm-hmm. um and there's like you get, so kind of wet ground kind of right around now for here it depends on your elevation and everything uh, my buddy in San Juan Islands, he he's picking morels in March, mm-hmm. you know. So, and Robert Abernathy in South Carolina yeah. gets them in March. Anyhow, big messed up cottonwoods, and then it kind of gets where the grass is what, like you know, it just starts to look morelly, man. It, it, yeah, da- that dappled sunlight, twelve inch high grass, which made it you could have been walking right by him without seeing them. And the last little dumpster cluster was at a stone dead cottonwood. Okay. 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 Stone dead. Um, got a black bear the other night. Been a while since you shot a bear, hasn't it? <sighs> Man, been a while. I've seen some get seen some get shot since then, but I haven't shot a bear in a long time. Uh, I I saw post Clay had hardly any fat on that bear. Well, we could, yeah, like in where you'd find it, it didn't have that much. But then I gave, uh, when we cut it up yesterday morning and packaged it all, I'm going to bring you some, Corinne. I got it all packaged. Thank you. Uh, I cut off enough for, but no, I I cut off enough off of the, off the hind quarters. I cut off enough to render a cup of oil, Hmm. but no, not fatty, but like really nice hide on it. Very stout, well muscled, nice. but just not a lot of fat on it. What do you do with the feet? Keep it. I'm going to get it tanned and rugged out. Oh, so you, oh, all, you mean eating of, the feet? N- well, no, like, I've had that. Okay, no, no, no. Just if you're right, if you're going to do a whole rug with no, the feet I'm going to get him with his claws okay, and everything okay. on him. Yeah, I got a couple. Eh, I don't know. That's one of the problems. Not a problem, but like one of the things about bears is how many bear hides do you need? Right, and you're not going to waste it. Yeah, you know, what I mean, it's just like. But I'm back into it now. I mean, we used to hunt bears so heavily. Like, really would devote a lot of time to it. And then I just kind of, for a while, just got sick of those southeast bears that taste like fish. Southeast Alaska. Southeast Alaska bears that taste like fish. Yeah. But no, we had, we had a great time, man. Why don't you make like a like a coat cape kind of situation? or? A... I don't know why I don't do that. You know? It's hard to pull that off. <laughs> You know Ronnie Bames ruled to never wear a hat that has more personality than you do? I don't know what he'd think about having a cape that has more personality than you. Imagine Steve rolling in here with a bear cape yes, and his workout I, pants. I uh, actually see him starting the trend, potentially. It was, 90, it was 90 degrees. And higher. Oh, that would be brutal. It was like you, it was, it felt berry till 8 30 in the morning. And then the day we got one, so we went up, hiked in this area a couple miles in, hotter than hell. Got there, it got cool. And then we're in a big burn that had like, it was like a mosaic burn from a long time ago. And there's still nice little timber patches, just kind of glass in those timber patches. Mm-hmm. First night, boom, there's a bear. Put the moves on him. He gave us the slip. Uh, in the morning, we were like set up to glass this, this west-facing exposure so that we were looking east, and there's so much haze in the air that like we kind of the morning was shot. 
couldn't just like, I was like looking into a blue smoke almost sat there for 12 hours in the blazing hot sun with these aggro ants oh. <laughs> that were fired up about the heat. I think. Mm. Yep. Oh, you try to take a nap and just feel ants all over you. It's misery. That's a long day. This Set up a here. shade tent. Gets to be about 8.30, starts feeling berry, and there's another damn bear. And we got that one. Yeah. Sweet. No, it was good. It was good. Uh, you hanging in there, y'all? I'm, I'm, I'm here. Don't go yeah. anywhere. Yeah. We're going to get into some <laughs> hardcore history in a minute here, man. Uh, oh, the other day I sent Corinne a note. I sent her a text. I was reading an article about Prince Harry. That Prince Harry and Oprah are launching a TV show about mental health. And I said to Corinne, if I had to, something to the effect of, if I had to list every program ever made in the history of the planet in order in which I would watch it, I would start with that on the bottom. It's like, and then I would fill everything else in. It was like the weekend and I get a text from Steve and he's like, remind me to talk about how this is. The thing I would least, I'd be least likely to ever watch, and I'm like, okay. Well, this came, this came on the heels like, I, like it's very un-American to like the royal family. It's it's like here I'm breaking my own rule by talking about them, but it's super un-American. We had a whole war to get out from under the monarchy, but people still act like it's cool. I read an article in the Times where, where some guys like um, Hallman, when, when his when his uh his uh his his wife. It's like, oh, they're mean, right? The royal family. I read this article Times being like, hold on a minute. You're surprised that there's a problem with a monarchy? This is a shock to everybody? Like, globally, the whole world has moved away from monarchies because of the abuse, nepotism, anti-democratic, everything. Like, you get to lead because your dad, like, you're born into a certain family and you get to be in charge because of who your dad was or your mom. And then someone points out, like, oh, they're mean. It's like, no shit. <laughs> I mean, isn't that the whole point? Uh, like, it's not like the world's going to monarchies. I don't, I don't know if they're We've been tra- drifting yeah. from that for hundreds of years. <laughs> they're mean. Uh, oh. oh, I thought they were all super nice. Really nice kings and queens. Off on his head. Remember all that <laughs> stuff? <laughs> God. So I'd be like. But look, Steve, they're much nicer now because they don't exactly do off with their heads. So, you know, we no, can. Uh, now they know. ride. I was telling my kids, they ride around in little carriages. They're like, no, they don't. I'm like, listen. So I had to pull up pictures. I got my kids hating them now, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to teach your kids love and everything. But I, I like, I try to be very precise and teach them certain hate. <laughs> but I try to teach them to really despise the royal family. I'm, get, I'm getting somewhere with it. Uh, yeah, I was just like, holy cow, man. Um, holy cow. I, I usually try to not like uh, burden listeners with opinions of mine that have nothing to do with what we – with our set of things that we – like with our world, right? Like the world, the brand promise of what it is we talk about. Right? But every now and Walleye then. Walleye flays, kangaroos. <laughs> that's all like in – that's all in – and Prince Harry is out, so I need to apologize for having brought up something that's out. Like, I'm not going to, like, yeah, apologies. Apology. Just a quick weekend text to Corinne. <laughs> I think most would agree. Here's something kind of interesting where there's a, 
Um, this was reported in a handful of places. There's a bill. There's some, there's some folks pushing to ban, like they got a gripe with kangaroo hunting in Australia, which is like a very tightly regulated industry in Australia, where they want to ban the import of any and all kangaroo products into the U.S. It, and it has a, a kind of a weird history. So I didn't realize this, but back in the 70s, kangaroo numbers were, kangaroos were down. And hurting, I know they go like wildly, you know, they're, they're wildly cyclical. And in 71, California banned the import of kangaroo parts. So just into that state, right? Um, and they have a, there's a commercial kangaroo industry in Australia. So they have all kinds of, there's all kinds of non-native wildlife there that's, that's less regulated. They're, they're right now they're trying to exterminate what, how many cats they're trying to exterminate? Feral cats? All of them. Two, yeah, they got a goal to shoot off 2 million cats or something in Australia. Anyways, there's a lot of non-native stuff that's more liberal and unregulated hunting, but they have a tightly regulated kangaroo industry where it's basically, run, it's like they, they, they harvest it like you would imagine harvesting livestock, but it's a wild animal. So there's market set and people come in and establish, you got to get you know these commercial licenses, you have to pass tests to become a sharpshooter. Um, and a long time ago, California banned parts and then the U S fish and wildlife service followed suit and banned the import of three commercially shot kangaroo species. Cause they're worried about declining roo populations, even though many Australians felt that that was not a concern. Um, eventually they were removed from the U S list of endangered and threatened wildlife in 1995. So apparently deemed recovered in 95 but the california ban lingered until the mid 2000s and people didn't pay much attention to it and then a vegetarian activist group sued adidas for selling soccer shoes that were using imported kangaroo skins this got me thinking about when i was a little kid i wanted a pair of shoes called ruse that had i was wondering if they were made out of kangaroo hide but they just had like a little zippered pocket Oh. <laughs> yeah, but my mom wouldn't. I thought it was because we were poor, but my mom just wasn't dumb. My mom not being dumb made me think we were poor because she wouldn't let us have any name brand stuff. <laughs> we couldn't get like, you'd want like real Doritos, but you had to eat like store brand potato chips, you know? <laughs> and you wanted it in a bag. So you go to school and it'd be like a bag that said Doritos, but it'd be like a little sandwich baggie full of like store brand <laughs> ones. Yeah, and... uh and oh, she never lets have anything cool. We wanted like Nike sneakers. You bring up Adidas. I, I'm a huge soccer fan. Played soccer growing up. And oh, you did. I think Adidas's most popular shoe is kangaroo leather. Based. Still today. Huh. Yeah. Is it, yeah. it? Oh. I wonder if it was the Sambas. Remember that black and white it's, ones? It's everyone. Not the, it's, it's not, not the Sambas, but it's the uh, they call it the Copa Moondials. I had a pair. Um, I played in them, you know, most, most, most of it growing up. So you kicked yeah. some goals in kangaroo. Yeah, I did. Does that, did. does that, does that ball bounce <laughs> off that kangaroo leather nice? It's super, uh, the leather is super soft. So, I mean, you know, it, it was more, um, I would say I played in the midfield. So it was, it was one of those like more like passing type of shoes, I would say. Huh. Um, so yeah, so really? it was very popular Adidas shoe. To what, to what did, did it have like psychological ramifications where you felt real springy when you put those suckers on? No, no. I just knew that I needed to, to leather it up. You, like you, you, you had to buy this oil with it, like it to was keep like, it nice, it, to keep it, it uh, like weather, uh, um, 
waterproof. Oh, it's good that we got yeah. a subject matter expert yeah. here. Man. <laughs> yeah, so they sued Adidas. Uh, yeah, this vegetarian activist group sued Adidas for selling soccer shoes using imported kangaroo skins. Now they're trying to revive this whole thing. A bunch of international activist groups and a member of the U.S. House of Representatives and an Australian politician who is the lone elected representative of the Animal Justice Party. So if you want to get yourself some kangaroo chops, <laughs> Better hurt. stock up on them sneakers. A smart thing to do, dude, right now, if you're a big Adidas man, is buy a bunch of those shoes. <laughs> yeah. yeah and, then, and then and sell, sell them on eBay. eBay. <laughs> and then take that money and buy a walleye boat and then send pictures of that walleye boat to Chester and say, suck it, Chester. <laughs> <laughs> Like, say, I was able to do with kangaroo shoes what you were never able to do with Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, here's, a great, here's a great thing. Now that a news story comes out and a million people, a million people text it to me and a million people texted me this one, that there's an article in The Atlantic, um, which is like oftentimes a reasonable publication, I feel. And it's not their fault, but someone just published this piece uh, arguing that in in the in the great saga of wolves being magical, <laughs> magical creatures, and again I'm not hacking on wolves. I like wolves. I like seeing them, hearing them, looking at them, everything. Uh, but it's like if you want to stop highway vehicle collisions, you need to get yourself a bunch of wolves. And it was pointing out that. Uh, pointing out that in, and I got to look into this more. And it's like, there's like the whole issues of causation and what's that thing, Corinne? Causation, causation is not. Yeah. No, but there's a saying. Correlation is not equal causation. Oh. Correlation yeah. is not equal causation. Yeah. Okay. Arguing that in counties in Wisconsin. Yep. In counties in Wisconsin that had wolves come in, there is a reduction in highway vehicle collisions. With deer. With deer. Okay. Saying that their wolves are saving us so much more money in avoiding car crashes than they're costing people in livestock death. Saying that, oh, yeah, you get wolves, and all of a sudden. But see, wolves have been around for quite a long time in Wisconsin. So it's not like all of a sudden there's like none, and then you put some there, and then that's where the causation thing comes up. Because there's been a reduction in deer car collisions in certain counties that have wolves. And I pointed out to Corinne, I was saying, hey, uh, if you're good at math, we should figure out how many deer car collisions that hunters prevent, which is imperfect, but it, it, it brings up a point. So you have, just, just for sake of, just set this whole thing up, this is an incredible number. 19,757 Wisconsinites collide with deer every year. That's unbelievable. That's crazy. That, like That's many, so many a night. So let's say 20,000 deer car collisions in Wisconsin every year equals, this will surprise me too, how few deaths. That leads to 477 human injuries and only eight deaths. And I think six of those are motorcyclists. Hmm. So you imagine like the percentage of vehicles on the road compared to like, you know what I'm saying? Like what percentage of highway passengers are in a vehicle versus on a motorcycle, which is mm -hmm. like overwhelmingly vehicle, car. 
Yep. Um, that makes it seem like uh, I did, we could pull those numbers too. But the fact that eight that six of eight fatalities are dudes hitting them on motorcycles right. is pretty crazy. That is crazy. It makes you think that like that's another thing in your head when you're riding a motorcycle. So, if a wolf kills twenty deer per year, wolves in Wisconsin are probably killing about twenty four thousand two hundred deer a year. Hunters, and they're saying that these wolves can lead to a 24% reduction in deer car collisions. And I brought up to Crimble, how many how many deer car collisions do hunters pre- prevent? Because wolves kill in Wisconsin about 24,000 deer. Hunters kill 188,000, basically round up. Hunters kill 189,000 deer in Wisconsin last year. That's a ton of deer. Yep. Wisconsinites killed 189,000 deer. So that would be the real article I was pointing out. The real article would be, holy cow, do hunters prevent a lot of death? And then when you go hunting, people be like, why do you hunt? I'd be like, well, I mean. Saving lives. Saving lives. Saving American lives on the highway. Hunters should get a discount on their car insurance. Yeah. (laughs) But then Corinne was like looking into this more and pointed out that, pointed out to me that they were saying the, the, Effects of wolves on saving human lives on the highway is beyond the deer they actually kill. But it says that wolves, unlike people, this one I don't get, wolves create like a landscape of fear, which we had a podcast episode named Landscape of Fear. Wolves create a landscape of fear and move deer away from heavily trafficked areas. But if you look at a map of where deer car collisions occur, they occur along the interstate system. So they're sort of saying that wolves like to hunt the interstate. Wolves are out on the, on, on the interstate hunting deer and push them away from the interstate into the remote areas where the wolves don't want to go. Kind of? Am I kind getting this of, right? Maybe. I mean, I think it gets complicated. I went down a research hole, so I think we'll have to come back to this, but... Steve, your I, your thought was that um, that most of the deer car uh, collisions happen in urban areas. Yeah, most of them are occurring. Right, and that is absolutely like true. the leaders, Dane County in the mm-hmm. South. Yep, right. Yep, um, and the top three are, I mean, Dane is half a million people. Uh, Waukesha, if that's the way the right way to pronounce, about four hundred thousand. And then Washington County is a hundred and thirty six uh hundred thousand, and this is all data from twenty nineteen so those are all urban counties, and they have about seven to eight hundred deer crashes per year from twenty nineteen but then number four, and there are among the top ten counties, there are three uh one two there are four rural counties. Um, but number four with a population of about 41,000 people, Shawano County had 725 deer car collisions. So there are a couple of data points in here that, uh, you know, kind of poke holes or not poke holes, but, um, it gets a little complicated here because there are. Some really low population rural areas. They have a lot incre- of car crashes. Yeah, with a lot of car crashes. But what they're but here, here's the other thing is you gotta look at you could look at population, but that doesn't attest to highway traffic. 
Sure. Mm-hmm. On interstate system. There's a lot to it, but, yeah, but there's, there's and I want to do it, but I, I thought it'd be like, when I first saw it, I thought it was the dumbest thing in the world. <laughs> but then I looked at it, I was like, oh, there's more to it. It can't be like easily, it's yeah. not easily torn apart. But there's some suggestions there, like the idea that wolves push deer from the areas that they hunt into areas they don't hunt and would mean like they hunt highway systems, mm-hmm. which I don't think that that's yeah. accurate. But the primary point, and I, we should, I'd love, if they want to come on, I'd love to have them on. The primary point is I feel that they – it's one of those kind of things you read and you get the sense that they knew mm-hmm. what they wanted to show before they showed it. Oh, mm-hmm. definitely. Mm-hmm. There was a mm-hmm. point. But someone from – well, what's that school? Wellesleyan? Isn't that where Hillary oh, Clinton yeah. went? Wesleyan? Wesleyan? That's Hillary Clinton school? I don't think so. Yeah, Maybe. This list of counties also doesn't say where – like if there's wolves there or not, which seems like right. you know an appropriate – Here's a direct quote from no, the No, she went to Wellesley, the all women's college. Oh, okay. Yeah. Here's a direct quote from the from the person. Most of their influence arises through dread, not death. Their very presence creates a landscape of fear. Um, it's weird that people want deer to be so afraid. Their very presence <laughs> creates a landscape. It's like people like want deer to be afraid. Creates a landscape of fear which pushes deer away from roads and other heavily prowled areas. This makes tremendous sense, Zanette said. Actually, Zanette is a, I think she's a biologist who was commenting Commenting in this article, but wasn't actually the person who uh, conducted the, the study. I mean, I think there was a fair amount of doubt or just wanting to see causation, wanting to see this study replicated. Because uh, right now the conclusions are, you know, hazy. Yeah. But uh, when Karen and I talked about this morning, we we're talking about it's more about um, it's more about sociology than ecology. Because mm-hmm. more about like what we want to see. Yeah. And if you have a heavily pro wolf bias, you'll be like all of a sudden acting like you care about highway vehicle collisions. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> If this was coming from, if this article, and I don't know enough about the person, if the article was coming from someone, like let's say the 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 government is like tasked someone to be like, what can we do about highway, uh, you know, vehicle deer collisions, right? And this person's like, well, we could advance headlight technology, right? Which we've done a lot of. Headlight technology is very important. Um, better signage in high trafficked areas. We could do wildlife crossings. Improved, uh, you know, collision sensors, all of that. Collision you know? sensors. And yeah, then yep. increasing the, when you cut brush away and cut trees away, so motors can see more, let's see, have a bigger window to see on the sides of the road won't be coming. Little tricks and little tricks and stuff like that. Some things that really make sense. So if this person had looked at everything and they said, you know what, man? <laughs> the one thing you're missing. After examining, <laughs> after really getting into this, man, after really getting into this, I think here's the answer. We bring a bunch of wolves to Madison. And turn them loose. You'll see. We'll put an end to deer car crashes. Like <laughs> then I'd be like, "Tell me more," but that's not where it's coming from. <laughs> we'll return to this. You should ask the someone. I don't know, man. Maybe someone. Someone should come on and explain it. Okay. Can you do that, Corinne? I'll uh, I'll I'll see if I can find the uh, the lead uh, researcher. Okay, I want to talk about one last thing, then we're going to get it hardcore. And, oh, no, two quick last things. Ah, there's three. Ah, there's four. We can <laughs> skip some of the things. 
Okay. <laughs> this is interesting, though. So a California park ranger, he's out doing his patrols in the California's East Bay Municipal Utility District. He's in the Sierra Nevada foothills. He starts noticing all kind of uh, petrified trees. No one knew about it. Finds a bunch of petrified trees, finds a bunch of more petrified trees, and eventually realizes it's like this giant debris pile of stuff from what from what year? Eight million years. An eight million year old debris yeah. pile of trees. And in here they find, once they get to digging around, an eight million year old mastodon skull with both tusks intact. Six foot skulls on this thing. A rhino skeleton from back when we had rhinoceroses. There's a giant tortoise. There's a horse. There's a tape here. Here's the good one. Yeah. The remains of an ancestral 400-pound salmon. <laughs> With? With sharp teeth. With Yeah. <laughs> Don't leave that out. A sharp-toothed salmon. <laughs> that weighs 400 400-pound salmon running out of the rivers, <laughs> running out of the oceans. A gomphothere, which I didn't know about. It was an ancient elephant that had four tusks plus 600 petrified trees. That is so neat. One of the most significant fossil discoveries in California history. They suspect floods and volcanic debris flows carried all this junk to this spot. That is cool. Yep. And that, they won't yep. tell anybody where it is because some guy like me, <laughs> it'd be so hard if someone's like, oh yeah, right up there, man. Keep finding all this crazy shit that you wouldn't go, yeah, have a look. That's Steve, all right. That's Steve, all right. I have a quick look up there. Do we know if this was like one event or is it layers of? I I didn't read that much. Yeah, I think everything they found there, um, it's supposed to be uh, from the Miocene, uh, which is 20 million to 5.3 million years ago. So I I think there were kind of layers. And stuff scattered across an entire area. And it's funny, like the the ranger found one uh, petrified tree and then kept walking around and found some others. And then over, I think it was a couple of weeks, like kept going he back kept to sniffing the around site. Up there. Yeah. And then he's like, you know, Better I think I need someone. to call someone. <laughs> yeah. They'd have been like, if I was that ranger, they'd be like, what'd you see up there? Nothing. <laughs> and this could have been your next Instagram post. Why, why were you up there with a wheelbarrow? <laughs> your next Instagram post might have some tusk in the background. Yeah. Nothing. Why? Um, no, that's great. No, man. you wouldn't do that. That's great. Oh, uh, that, that's, that's a cool find. You know, the thing I, when you think about all the cool animals you hear a long time ago, I like to imagine. Like, we're not going to be around forever. Like, just whatever. I mean, when you get into talking about geologic time, right, a, a disease event, whatever the hell, yeah. we'll destroy ourselves. Like, no species gets to be here forever. Except the cockroach. Cockroaches. <laughs> if you could come here, like, fast, instead of going back in time, like, I'm like, oh, I want to go back in time to see all that crazy stuff. If you could go in time and go like, I'm going to come back to the earth in a billion years, there'd be a bunch of crazy shit running around. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And what do you think we'd look like? Like dudes with four tusks? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it'd be interesting. Uh, this, this, guy in, um, this guy in Idaho, we, we got to talking about uh, ravens killing livestock and deer and stuff. This was reported. I was surprised when this was reported. It was reported in The Hill. 
Yeah, right? Of all publications. An Idaho farmer, he's always had bald eagles nest on his property. Says this year something weird happened. He thinks that because it was such a cool spring that these bald eagles came to nest, but the the, the fishery wasn't kicking ass yet. I, I don't know. He's got a lake or he's got a lake. And he said it took a while to warm up. And he's wondering if their normal food source in the yeah. lake wasn't available when they showed up to nest. Anyways, they killed 54 lambs, 12 to 80 pound lambs. He watched one kill. He watched one eagle kill seven lambs. In one day. Jeez. Yeah. Reported in the hill. Last little note here. Uh, Hunters in West Virginia are mourning the loss of one of their hunting spots. They rolled, what's this place called? New River Gorge National Park. Yep. Used, used to be New River Gorge, uh, whatever, preserve. It was a preserve. National, yeah. They horked 7,000 acres of land out of the core of this thing to make a national park. So 7,000 acres in, in the heart of the gorge, which is very rough terrain. Locals say it was some of the area's best hunting grounds. Um, they rolled that out. There's still 65,000 acres that you can hunt. They removed 7,000 and then gave a little bonus where they added about 370 acres of newly opened hunting lands. But yeah, stole 7th Park Service. I don't want to say stole. That's strong language. <laughs> I just hate to see, like, I hate to see that kind of thing happen. I mean, if it's already good and protected, as scenic river, wilderness area, whatever, I hate to see it be that they lay in this like you can't hunt it. Like, I like to see ground protected from industrial exploitation and development, but it's a bummer to see that, to get it pulled. Has anyone ever been to that area? I've hunted. been there. Yeah. Have you? Yeah. New River's got great smallmouth fishing. Hmm. Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it's fairly close to a lot of pretty big metrop metropolitan areas. So, you know, I'm sure visits at this place will be, you know, th there'll be a lot of people going. But, uh, yeah, it's a bummer that land got cause, – because I believe they're promised that they could always – Yeah. Under that was the, part the, of the deal. The previous mm -hmm. designation, and then they uh, changed their tune. Our newest national park. How how up in arms are people about it? By are like locals that hunted it? Well, I'm not. I mean, I can't. I mean, I didn't live near there enough to to know how, how upset people are. But you got to imagine that. You know, you get your hunt your quote your hunting spot taken away you're not going to be too pleased you know um we when i was living in new york we used to float the upper delaware mm -hmm. near calicoon and that had gone under wild and scenic river designation man you saw a lot of signs up and down the river people pissed about it because the regulation like use regulations changed yeah, people were pissed about yeah. it um and this thing became under as a national river under park protection in 78 and people were assured you could hunt the entire property, mm -hmm. but then it uh, then they just lost ten percent prohibited. Yeah, I mean, I'd imagine some hunters are really kind of pissed about it, um, based on just some of the articles I've read. But you know, I guess some of the other locals are are uh, you know excited about potential uh, economic prosperity sure. it might bring to the area. I mean, it's I guess it'll put West Virginia on the map. 
a bit more. So I guess it depends on what your priority is. Oh yeah. If you're like yeah. a running a canoe livery. Yep. You're probably excited as all get out. Yep. All those non-outdoors out, you know, all those non-true outdoors folks, yep. Steve. Hikers and bikers. <laughs> Hikers and bikers are all fired up. <laughs> Uh, last little thing here we'll touch off on because I, I, I want to touch off and it's just because it's from my home state of Michigan. Like, there's got to be, I need to know more to the story. So, um, what what is written here is a, in this, come on, Corinne, a massive fish poaching? Well, I don't know. Look at all those laid out. 80, <laughs> 80, 80, they broke 85, up. you know, bags of, you know, yeah, freezer but size. But I know it's I a I need PA, to hear yeah. more. There's got to be more Fine. to the story. Okay. If you want to find a good guest, get this guy on. I'm guessing he doesn't feel like talking about it. <laughs> but Corinne's massive fish poaching operation. I don't know what happened. Huron County, two guys find $8,500 combined. For quote poaching hundreds of walleye, panfish, and perch. By panfish, I must mean, bluegills because perch are like a panfish. I don't know. Either way, bunch of fish. This guy's fr- freezer got raided, and then a game warden. This is a weird thing. There's a lot to this I don't understand. They thawed out all the guys' fish, and then they laid it out on and tarps. laid it out on tarps. <laughs> he had. As if it were like bricks of cocaine and like automatic <laughs> rifle. Yeah. <laughs> like laid after out a bust. So. As though it, like in classic drug raid fashion, laid out hundreds of perch fillets. Yeah. Like a cocaine, like when you line up a bunch of AKs and bags of dope and stuff from some like cartel raid. Perch fillets. Hundreds of perch fillets laid out on giant tarps. And in all of his empty Ziploc baggies. <laughs> so his freezer got raided. And a conservation officer found 85 bags of frozen walleye, quote, panfish. I'm not happy with that term. And perch flays in his house. The guy was ordered to pay 7930 bucks worth of fines. And his friend was fined 600 for taking over the limit of perch. Taking over the limit of perch is one thing, but the reason I need to know more is like, was this dude, I don't know, maybe that they were on to him for something else and that led to this, but there are a lot of people I know in Michigan that if at the end of a good fishing spell, you went to their house and started thawing all their shit out, you'd find they had over their possession limit. What What is Including the- my old man back when he was alive. <laughs> and even with following possession limit rules if you've got say four or five people in your household you can have a lot of damn perch in your freezer but okay let's say you're in because it, it varies because like the big lakes are different let's say you're in an area just for argument's sake here let's say where he's at he's allowed 50 perch per day and the possession limit is two daily limits so he can have in his home freezer 200 perch fillets but let's say you like have i'm just no one thinks about it <laughs> if you're tearing it up and you're like, oh, I'm going to have a big fish fry, I don't know, and you catch five, six limits of perch because you're saving up for a big church fundraiser, fish fry, <sighs> there's no, got to be more to the story. No he had no gotten on their radar somehow. No one's thinking about it after they go in the freezer. No. Like, they're, they're he's probably, you know. I think about it with ducks. He's probably, yeah. Because that's federal, like, crazy. But uh, someone must not turn crazy, him in. But, Maybe not, but I imagine he's, like, following... Like the daily limit. Well, they're saying this one guy got not. But here's the other thing is 
What are they going to do with all those perch plays now they got them thawed out? Feed them to the bald eagles. Holy cow. I know. That's your... 85 bags of perch plays. And they're nice scaled, skin on, well put up plays. They took care. It's not like they just caught them and didn't take care of them. Like they took care of this This fish. dude was, pr- I don't know if he's selling them. Like what we found in the past in talking to conservation guys, uh, game wardens. And I'm not, ha- I'm not hacking on this game warden. I don't know the story. But a lot of times, like, that stuff comes out of that they're on to you about something. Like, you've mm-hmm. done something, they're on to you about it, and that leads. It's not like they're just, like, going and banging on doors and digging through freezers. Yeah, it's got to be something. Because, yeah, I'm sure they weren't like, hey, we should, just, go up, we should stop, stop in and see what this guy has in his freezer. <laughs> like, something happened. Maybe. So yeah. here's another article. And I it, it, it doesn't point out kind of, like, the backstory. But the main guy with, you know, those 85... <laughs> Bags, Ziploc, freezer bags. Um, okay. I just want to get a barrel of cornmeal and just start <laughs> put in a put in a fertilizer spreader and just drive that over that big sheet of <laughs> some Tony fifty five gallon drum of hot oil. Here, this guy had going grim. <laughs> he had thirty five walleye. The daily limit is eight. Hummet in what? In his freezer? Yeah. Among okay. the, you know, within the 85 okay. taken that day, uh, 85 bags taken that day, 35 walleye, the daily limit is eight, and anglers may possess an additional two days limit of walleye as long hmm. as they're processed with a total possession limit of 24. That's a lot of walleye. You're and, allowed to have a lot of walleye in your freezer. Yeah. Uh, 245 panfish, the daily limit is 25. You're talking about bluegills there. Okay, bluegills. Or like blue, it's like, it'd be like bluegill, pumpkin seed, mm-hmm. you know. Yep. With a total possession limit of 75. And he was over uh, by 393 additional perch. <laughs> the daily limit is 25. And you can uh, possess an additional two days limit uh, as long as they're processed with a total possession limit of 75. I just like we're talking about a lot of things here that we don't really know about, but my here, here's the, I just want to explain this. My instinct when I see all those perch plays is like I've known this guy all my life. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I, mean? Wait, I mean? I've like maybe it's part of a sting operation like, to uncover it, like, like dozens I, of your extended friends and family. My yeah, it's like my old man and the old man he hung out with like. I'm just, I feel like I'm staring into their freezer. Okay. These, these yeah, folks are 68 and 53. Yeah, like, yeah. oh, I, I gotta, I gotta scroll. I gotta scroll. I can't handle it. They might've had a side hustle going on selling yeah. these things. Well, do you remember that big sting we reported on? That was like, we reported on this a long time ago. Yeah. Hang tight, dude. Okay. We reported on this a long time ago. It was a big sting operation. It even had a name like, like North star. And you read this as a poaching ring, and you read the 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 all the charges on these guys, like racketeering, wire fraud. But it was, and, and I'm not excuse it, but it had these names where you look and you think like, oh, it's the mafia, like they broke up a mafia organization because racketeering and wire fraud. But the wire fraud was like you had to do a call in to register your deer. So a dude shoots two deer, has his girlfriend. Uh, claim one on her tag. So she calls in to report to, to report the deer to the deer harvest hotline. That's wire fraud. Right. Huh. 
Racketeering yeah. would be a guy goes to, he brings a buck down to his taxidermist to get it stuffed and pays the taxidermist in Smokies. Smoke, like snack sticks. <laughs> yeah. I'm not joking. <laughs> pays the taxidermist in snack sticks. And then they had a deal worked out where they got like reduced taxidermy to then get extra snack sticks. And they had some guy who had a gift shop and he's selling snack sticks that made off their deer smokies. <laughs> and then another guy, here's another, here's another thing in this big roll up. There's a, there's a, another fraud. There's a, there's a walleye derby. A guy goes ahead of the derby and goes and catches walleye in a different state. Okay. Puts them in his live well. And drives over and signs up for the derby at a gas station. Like the gas station is holding the walleye derby. And wins the prize with walleye he caught in another state and had him in his live well. And it winds up being like this like interstate fraud thing. So on paper, it's like, holy shit, what were these guys doing? And you look, they're just doing a bunch of like hillbilly (laughs) bullshit. (laughs) Like a bunch of things you would probably wouldn't, like a lot of guys wouldn't think about. You know, yep. you're like, oh yeah, I owe you a hundred bucks. Let me bring you some Smokies. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, yeah. yeah. Man, between streaming services, fitness apps, and delivery services, it's never ending. I'm talking about the, the, the subscriptions, the monthly dings on your credit card. Well, thanks to Rocket Money, I'm no longer wasting money on the ones I forgot about. Rocket Money is a personal finance app. It goes in and finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. Meaning, you know, like, let's say there's like a show that comes out and you want to watch it and you wind up doing like this free trial and you forget about it. And then two years later, you realize you're paying those hosers 12 bucks a month for something you don't use. It finds that stuff, cancels it. It helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings instead. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Again, rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Hey, everybody. I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who over recent months... I've become friends with, and my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them, and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now, for the first time, 
They're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people. 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. All right, yeah. How do you want to start? Mung. You're Mung. Yes, sir. H-M-O-N-G. Let's start from the beginning. Okay. Who are who are the Mung? So the, or no, the so where are you from first? Where did uh, you establish that? Uh, I'm I'm in the uh, Twin Cities, Minneapolis area. Okay. Um, um, I live in Blaine, which is a... Uh, um, uh, city right side of, right outside of Minneapolis. And you're a hunter? Uh, newly hunter, yeah. yeah. New hunter? Yeah. And you're Hmong? Yes. And you were born in? Uh, I was born in Laos. Okay. Yep. Walk us through who the Hmong were and how... how... So the Hmong are uh, an ethnic minority group originally from the southern parts of China. And they, uh, at some point, were fighting with the Chinese because the Chinese wanted them to basically become Chinese. And a lot of the Hmong were like, no, we're, uh, they're a nomadic tribe. They, they have their own language. They have their own religion. We did not want to be Chinese. And so they were driven south into the Southeast Asian area. So Vietnam, uh, Laos, Cambodia. And that's where if you, as a person here in the U.S., if you meet a Hmong person, they're from Southeast Asia, essentially. And a lot of us have the same story is we were here because um, of our involvement in uh, the Vietnam War, more specifically, the secret war in Laos. What uh, I have probably the same level of exposure um, to Hmong culture is, is a lot of people that hunt where I, it's like, I just know, have always known very loosely that there's a lot of Hmong in the U.S., kind of had something to do with the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. and they like to hunt a lot. Mm-hmm. And that's about that, it. That's, that's accurate. <laughs> that's accurate. Yeah. So, uh, but, but break down, like, how, how the Hmong got tangled up with the, with the U.S., like how they became on the U.S. radar. Yeah, so back in the uh, 50s and 60s when um, it, was, it was around the spread of communism, um, in in that area, so the the idea was we had to stop the spread of communism um, in in that region. So you had um, 
North Viet- Vietnam, which um, was then um, uh, uh, trying to take over the country. You have the, the communist forces. So I'm not trying to talk about one particular group, but it was it was around the, essentially stopping communism. And mm-hmm. so the reason why it was called the secret war in Laos is like the you know the U.S. were not supposed to be be there, it, and they were uh, there to be advisors um, in that region to use and um, advise the like the local governments there to fight against the spread of communism. Yeah, because didn't um, like portions of the Ho Chi Minh Tra- Ho Chi Minh Trail came through Laos, right? Yeah, uh, basically most of it did. Uh, it was that's what essentially what it was. It was a, a a supply line, and it occupied the eastern parts of Laos. My uh, former neighbor at our fish shack in Alaska was a door gunner. On a helicopter yeah, yeah. in Vietnam, and he now talks about it freely, but for a long time did not. Yep. He spent he's, he spent his entire tour based in Vietnam, but he said all their stuff was in Laos, mm-hmm. dropping yep. people off, picking them up, uh, hitting hitting uh, transportation lines, all in Laos. Yeah, man. And early in uh, in in 1961, uh, early 60s, it was. Um, the, they got the the authorization from at that time JFK, who said yes, look into uh, working with some of the ethnic minority group in that area to help with like stopping the spread. And really, where Hmong people came in, were they knew the terrain. Hmong people throughout history have um, they, they were actually fighting. Even before the Vietnam War, they they actually, oddly enough, they were fighting with the French because you'd been in Vietnam, and I don't know if you remember the kind of like the French colonization, the, oh, the, yeah, influence, yeah. the influence there. And um, oddly enough, they'd always been fighting to, for their freedom. Um, if, if, if you look at some of the some of the, his, uh, the, the publications, they've always wanted to kind of be left alone. We, we want to be our own people, and we were... We were fighting against evil forces. Is is kind of like what they would say. And in their mind, the 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 outside communist influence was more of a threat to them than anything else. Correct to their autonomy. Correct. Right. Yeah. So that's how they got involved, and they were essentially used to uh, because they could just get places quicker. Right. You know, um, the the only thing that they didn't have were they didn't have firearms. Um, you know, which which um, eventually came from working with the CIA. Yeah. What did the Hmong traditionally hunt with? They have like these crossbows, so it's like a wooden stock, and then um, like the the cross would be um, like a, a it, it could be wood or it was like it could be bamboo, mm-hmm. um, and then they use for the strings they for for the strings they use um, uh, like a, a material called hemp. I don't know if you guys have heard of that, yeah, yeah. but it's like a fabric, um, and they use hemp and uh, like hemp they use for like clothing as well, and so you know that thing doesn't shoot really far. Right. And so um, it was like mostly for small game birds. Um, my, my dad so my grandfather owned one. If you had a blacksmith um, in the village who could like forge parts, um, you built your own flint stock. I know you guys had an episode about flint stock yep. up a while ago. And you, flintlock. Yeah. yeah. Oh, flintlock. Yep, right. Yep. Um, you know, you, it would be made out of wood and then you had to had had different parts and then they cooked up their own ammunition. And I, and I learned this recently, too, is they went and got bat dung from the caves and use that to like 
reduce it to some liquid and then cooked it up with hemp as well. And my dad said he doesn't know like the exact process. Well, they were able to make gunpowder. Yeah, they were. Yeah, we've talked about um, on here. We talked about the process by which Boone and other frontiersmen would make, and they would say anything. They'd go to caves for the guano. Oh, okay. okay, yeah. And then somehow they would use. Uh, you had to have yeah. They'd get saltpeter. Um, the hell, like ash. It took ash, willow ash. Your own piss. They'd wet okay, the thing yeah. down with piss, and then they used um, saltpeter, bat guano. Ah, I can't remember. Anyways, seems like a way to wind up with a product that wasn't entirely yeah, consistent. Yeah. And I, I knew I knew that because uh, we we had a, a very um, prominent member in our clan who recently passed away, and I'd learned that he he had been badly burned because he was cooking up his own oh, really? ammo. And then what? Uh, we recently covered a story or t- discussed a story in Taiwan where the Taiwanese government is passing anti-hunting regulations that are impacting indigenous Taiwanese. You know, talk about the indigenous Taiwanese still there hunting with homemade guns. Mm. Okay. And they want to switch to modern guns, and people don't want them to switch to modern guns. And they're pointing out the danger, the danger to them of hunting with homemade firearms. Mm-hmm. And they want to have something safer. Yep. yep. But they don't want they're they're afraid of the efficacy that would come from and so there's a desire to keep them hunting with with homemade sure. weapons. Yep. But then the Americans give them like Yeah. Um my my dad said his first his first gun was an M one carbine. So thirty is like a thirty cal. Uh-huh. Um um you know, I, I recently I'd just kind of really gotten into hunting and so, you know, again I'm going back and kind of just Learning about the first guns that they came they came across. You what know, year was your dad born? Uh, Fifty two. Yep. So was he? Did he? Does he have recollection like of the Hmong getting tangled up with the Americans? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, yeah. and actually, fast forward a little bit, the kind of like Montana connection in all this. There mm-hmm. was a there was a smoke jumper uh, by the name of Jerry Daniels uh, right out of here, out of Missoula. I think he was born in California, but lived in Missoula. That's why there's Hmong people in Missoula farming and uh, there, there's a community there. Fast forward that a little bit. And my dad was telling me the story that to come to America, um, this Jerry Daniels um, guy was worked really closely with the Hmong. And he was the guy that validated my dad's picture. Oh, really? Said, hey, yes, you are in fact a soldier. And, and, you know, because it was... Because he was a special forces yeah, soldier. Well, he, yeah. So my... Um, I'll, I'll, well, everybody was... The, no, I mean, the guy that was instrumental in yeah, bringing yes. Hmong to the... Yes. You know, when I lived in Missoula for... I lived there for quite a few years. Um, the farmer's market there is just dominated yes. by Hmong truck farmers. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, the other day, I was with my buddy. I was with my buddy Clay, and I was showing him around there. And uh, the irrig- they still have, like, out in certain areas in Missoula, irrigation diversions and stuff oh, for these okay. sort of, like, semi-urban, suburban farms. And yeah. wear the traditional hats. My my neighbor turns out um B and Shang are from Missoula. They What's his be, name? B. B. B Moa and Shang Moa. They're um they lived in uh, Missoula uh, pretty much most of their lives and they just moved uh into our neighborhood. Uh, we we moved into the neighborhood at the same time. We we live in a kind of a newer development and um we saw them at like our kids' schools, and we, you know, you know, you can just kind of tell they're Hmong, right? So you just say, "Hey, how's it going?" Yeah. And then, so, if you're a Hmong dude and you see a Hmong dude you don't know at a non-Hmong function, you just go, "Hi." Pretty or do much. you like talk? We're, we're do you like plan dinner, or do you just talk? Do you just wave? 
Uh, yeah, it's 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 or nod. it's cool to yeah, it's cool to go up there and say, hey, you know, you, you know, you're I'm I'm on. How you doing? You know, like you're just curious where that's how from. you do it. Yeah. Okay, so let let me just, here. I'll get this straight. Let's say you come in and let's say Phil's Mung. Uh-huh. You never seen him, never heard of him. You walk in this room and Phil's Mung. Yeah. You say, are you Mung? Yeah, I would. I would. Okay. Uh, because you can kind of just, just nod. Tell. But you like already yeah. could like a, It wouldn't yeah. be like a knowing yeah. nod. Yeah. I mean, it's polite to just ask him, like, what if he's not? Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I, I, I actually saw a family um, on my flight here yesterday in Minneapolis and they were like, they were sitting there and, and you had you know, a feeling. You, yeah. Well, you knew because <laughs> then they were, you know, so I was just like, Hey, how are you guys doing? And they were like, Hey, wait, wait, you know, um, why are you going to Montana? I was like, Oh yeah, I'm just going to go meet some friends. <laughs> you know? So, so yeah, I mean, they were just, so you family. felt obligated to go chat. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. Uh, okay. I want to get back to Asia for a minute. Yeah, famous sure. history, but then I want to, we got to move into, um, Stereotypes about Hmong hunters. Okay. Yep. And I'll tell you a whole bunch of them. Okay. okay yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, the in, in hunting land, in hunting world, there's two groups that everyone knows are just <laughs> the worst on the planet. They're so everything. Everybody in bottoms. It's uh the Amish and the Hmong are you know they don't look like us, yeah. but they like to hunt, which makes me not like them. <laughs> um, you hear about so. I want to fast forward a little bit through the Vietnam War. Okay. So Americans start to pull out. Mm-hmm. And you guys got a big old bullseye on your back. Yeah. Because we abandoned it and people are like, it's those, like, yep. they're after you now, right? Exactly. I mean, the communists come down hard. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and lay out kind of like with your own family history, what that wound up looking like for you guys when yep. the Americans left. Yeah. So I was telling Corinne this, you know, in, in the U.S., in some states, they uh, recognized like May 14th as uh, Hmong American Day. And that was like the last day uh, that essentially all the key advisors and uh, some of the key Hmong uh, military personnel were evacuated out of Laos. What year? Uh, 1975. Okay. Yep. And so even even before then, in 1973, they had already signed a ceasefire in Paris. So when they signed that ceasefire, it, it essentially turned Laos into a civil war country because you had the group or the military that um, I think supports the the royal family, which um, you know Laos was a, a, a monarchy at some point, and then you had the group that is supported by the communists. So essentially, they're still fighting to take over the, the, the country at that point. And so 1975, everybody leaves. Um, and um, essentially, to your point, Hmong people have a bullseye on their, you know, on them. And my family, between 1975 and 1979, uh, were essentially in the jungles of Laos, hiding, trying to go places where you, I mean, where you could find relatives, family, um, food, if you will. And there were still kind of groups that were hoping that those who were airlifted out would come back and take back the country is kind of what they Got say. Yeah. Right. So for four years, my family were, were basically um, just running around in the jungle, if you, if you will. Just like in hiding, living off the land, trying to exactly. avoid communists. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I get credit for being the oldest in our family. Um, but actually, like I lost two siblings in that time as well. Yeah. T- t- tell how that happened. Uh, I had a uh, six-year-old brother. And the way that it was explained to me was 
Um, again, they're walking, you know, uh, in this particular instance, they're walking through the night and they had come under heavy fire. And we, we had some relatives with us. My mom takes him. He's six, gives him to a relative um, who is a, a gentleman because he can actually carry him. Right. And then my mom had me and then my mom had grandma. And so she gives him to our relative. And they make a dash for for um, the other side of this road from from my understanding. Well, my mom and I make it across with other people. And as this relative and my brother are coming through, he says that he he thinks my brother gets gets shot. So when you when you carry somebody on your back like like a child, they probably have some sort of tension. They have a grip on you sort of. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, he says that. Um, he claims that as they were running through and they be, they came under heavy fire, um, at some point my brother let go. And so at that point he said that he made the decision to essentially uh, leave my brother where he was and like kept running. So they get to the other side and, you know, my mom's like, hey, you know, where is, you know, where's my brother? What was your brother's name? Uh, Tong. Mm-hmm. And so the, our relative goes, well, you know, he's been shot. Um, I left him in that general area. So my mom gives herself up. It's like, hey, you know, my mom's like, I'm a woman. They're not going to do anything to me. They don't care. I'm just going to give myself up. I'm going to go trying to find, you know, my brother. She gives herself up. She's captured. She comes around and first she says she calls for him and no answer, right? And she's like, well, maybe he really is is gone because he would have answered at that point. Um, the other thing was she's like, I'm calling, I'm calling to ask if anybody knows you know, if it may, perhaps maybe he's next to he's next to somebody who's still alive. Yep. If you would share like where you are. Well, people don't want to give themselves up, right? Because if you give yourself up, you know, then you, 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 there's a chance you die as well, right? So there's that. Um, so that's how I lost my older brother. No resolution though. No resolution. Yep. No idea where he's buried. No idea. Yep. Exactly. And then you lost a sister. I lost a sister. In the same time period. In the same time period. And so my, my, my sister was lost in kind of this weird situation where they, again, they were, um, you know, and it's related to hunting. You know, they get to this village and, you know, they're, like, they just, they're starving, right? I mean, you're, you're running around, um, you're hiding, and you, you don't really have much to eat. And so... Um, the story is my dad goes and traps this squirrel-looking animal, and he, he can't find the like the English equivalent or the American equivalent of it. I was able to find some YouTube, so I'll send it to you guys if you guys are interested. But he's he finds this this type of squirrel. It it like it burrows itself into um, next to tree stumps into the ground. You know, um, in when I was in Vietnam, I was with a guy that had killed a. You wrote about that in your book. Yeah. Yes. yes. He had killed a squirrel-like creature that was some kind of like, I think it was like an arboreal marsupial of some sort. Okay. But it looked like it looked a lot like a squirrel, and he killed it uh, up. He was telling, he showed me the tree where he got it. He killed okay. it with an air rifle. May, yeah, maybe it's, it's Yeah, I wonder, man. It was like I had never seen one in my life. I wish I'd have, I, I didn't see it until he'd already burned the hair off it. But it was, it was you, the, the equivalent would be like a, you know, like a squirrel-sized yeah. critter. Um, so... The story is that he goes and gets one, traps one of those. They come back and they cook it, and mm-hmm. she 
somehow got sick from that and like passed within um, like a half a day or something. Like that. Really? So again, I I get credit for being the oldest, but I you know I lost two siblings, um, and then essentially they were. And, but you, and you were alive at that point, but just very little. Yeah, I, you, I, you, you, I mean you were. I was young. like months, months old, months yeah, old. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how much were the monk pissed at the Americans for leaving? Um, I wouldn't say that. No, no. I mean, I think from everybody that I've talked to, if anything, I think Hmong people have more resentment against the Hmong who left, um, if anything. But more I, resentment against the Hmong who left earlier, who left who, ever? like who left who left the country in general, right? So they'd have resentment against your people. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. For splitting. Yeah. For splitting. Yeah. Like I'll be honest, I, Laos probably isn't the first place I'd travel to. No kidding. So point. you, so Hmong and Laos would regard you guys as like traitors. Yeah, you you could say that. Yeah, I I would I would agree with that statement. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, like as a young person, I don't know the Laotian language. If I knew the language, I I probably think about, hey, I might want to. I'm on. It's it's pretty country. Um, but like my wife and I, I don't think we have like Laos isn't our, you know, like the first place we'd visit simply because. I think they would have more resentment against like me versus Americans. There are people who didn't make it to refugee camps, who didn't make it out of the country exactly. eventually. Exactly. And they kind of stayed behind and yep. are still in the jungle all these right. years later, like living right. a and, hard and life. Still, yeah. And still being, you know, in a sense, like, like persecuted by, by, you know, people there. It's funny because you hear, uh, I shouldn't say it's funny, but you so often hear in term, in relation to in China and recently in the race, relation to Taiwan and other places where you hear about persecution of ethnic minorities. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it's hard for Americans to get like that kind of like geopolitical sense to understand that even in those places mm-hmm. you had like indigenous peoples, mm-hmm. right. Who had these distinct cultures. And so that the same way you might have this sense of like, uh, like you might have this sense of, in America, you have this Euro-American culture. We all know it well. You have this Euro-American mm-hmm. culture that collaborated with, warred with indigenous peoples, and there's still like a indigenous, you know, autonomy in places. But this is something that happens all around the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like displaced indigenous mm-hmm. individuals that, in some way, live, you know, oftentimes, especially there, live much closer to the land mm-hmm. than in other places. Um, or that ethnic minorities did not attain their own nation states, yeah, right? Yeah, like the yeah. majority of China is Han Chinese. There are many, many ethnic groups that just didn't get their own country that they're in power. And, and specific yeah. to the Hmong, it, it was really because as an ethnic minority, we occupied, you know, in, in, in our case, like Laos, the hillsides of Laos, you know, I mean, I think this happens everywhere too, is like you just don't like you know, ethnic minorities occupying that don't have a country occupying yeah. Yeah. like yeah. your land, you know. So walk through how you what was the process by which you guys ended up in the US? And and, and why did you why do so many Hmong go to Minnesota? Um yeah, it, it I get asked that all the time, you know, like is do you guys like the cold or something? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about it, if we occupied the hillsides, you know, the hill the altitude was higher. So we're you could say we're we're used to the cold. The reason why we ended up in Minnesota was was purely by chance. Um, so if you, again, if you meet a Hmong person here in the U.S., their story is fairly similar. You got a target on you 
when you know everybody pulls out, you essentially had to make your way to one of these refugee camps, the biggest one being in in Thailand. So, oh, so you had to get out of the country. Oh, you had to, you had to get out of the country on foot through yeah. the jungles. You know, whatever it is that you took. The men, um, I I get told the story all the time. The men, you know, when people started pulling out, the men would like go and buy tubes for themselves, like like you know inner tubes. Okay. You know what I mean? You know, and for and crossing rivers, for crossing the river, for crossing the Mekong, um, because they knew that at some point they would come to the river and they would need to cross it. Huh. And so you know, my parents get like separated. They get back together. Get separated through various reasons. Well, they make it to the river together, um, thankfully, you know, and some people didn't make it to the river together. They were like separated the whole time, had to meet up back in Thailand. The Mekong Four is the, is the border between Laos and- Correct. Yes. Okay. So and then it flows you, into Vietnam. Yeah. yeah. So if you cross the river, you like you make it to Thailand, essentially. Um, they get to the river, my dad puts, you know, my dad can't swim, puts in the tube. And, but the way my mom explains it is like, she basically thought he was going to drown because can't swim. It, can't swim. How's that only possible? Has, only has a tube. Because they're up in the mountains. Yeah. Because they're on the mountains. I mean, I, I think they fish, but I mean, there's really not, I, from my understanding, there's not, really not places for you to go like to swim or learn how to swim. Yeah. I had a friend who grew up on a ranch at 9,000 feet in Wyoming and she says, none of us know how to swim. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 So there's nothing to swim yeah. in. It's cold. <laughs> So, um, so yeah, he tosses and turns. I mean, my, my mom says that he's, he's a goner. I mean, there's, you know, and a lot of people died crossing that river for some reason he makes it across and you know, the way he explains it. But what about the kids? Well, the kids stayed on the other side. I mean, you, you, the idea was if he makes it across, he can maybe find Thai officials or something. I'm with you. That can then come. So you can just send one person across and then come back with a boat or whatever. Yeah. So he goes by himself. He goes by himself. Not with your mom. No, not with with my mom, my grandma, and whoever else, um, my aunt. There's this whole slew of people there. And you guys just like living off the land at this point. Yeah, exactly. And I'll I'll get to this, but he, he tosses and turns, gets across, and he like sits down to rest. And he, the way he describes it is, this thing comes out of the water and he thinks it's like some, you know, Hmong people believe in like, like water dragons or something, something like that. Right. Like mystic, like some mystical um, animal. Right. He's like, this thing comes out of the water. I'm like, he's like, I'm done for. It's like, it's, it's probably some, you know, animal that's like coming to eat me. Right. I guess, I guess it creates a a wave or something. Well, it turns out that it was a Thai boat that, saw him cross and came to get him. And so a they- A boat. A boat, yeah. Uh, so uh, he was kind of tripping from- Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was in rough shape. Yeah, he was in, He didn't know what it was. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, 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 from his description, he thought it was some, like, dragon, <laughs> right? He's like, oh boy, I this, this is it. You know, this is it. I crossed the river and this is it. Turns out it was, um, like, two Thai uh, uh, officials with their boat. And so they go, they grab him, go to the other side, and grab the rest of the family and 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 ferry them across. So that's how we make it to Thailand. So there has to be tension between Thailand and Laos. 
Well, um, at, at that point, um, cause they're helping, they're like taking in yeah. and assisting in the escape of, of right. people that they're trying to catch. Well, at that point in kind of the history of this, um, you know, I, I think even the U S government coined it like the domino theory, you know, they, they're like, basically if one of these countries fall, the rest in that region is going to fall. And yeah. so, um, at that point, you know, Thailand wasn't, um, at war or, or didn't, didn't have any, I, Hadn't I guess. Gone calm. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, and I, I guess through whatever political treaties that they had at that time, I, I suppose, you know, the Thai camp was the big refugee camp that everybody had to get to, right? So they go to the refugee camp and essentially he goes and meets up with his commanding officer by chance. Four days later. The guy the, he'd served with during the, the war. The guy that he served it with, the, the commanding officer had heard that my dad was still in Laos essentially running, right? Hiding, running. And uh, four days after getting to the refugee camp, he goes into the room, the commanding officer is there, and the gentleman I, I mentioned earlier from Missoula, Jerry Daniels, is in the room. He says that, well, I, I knew who Jerry was, and, um, you know, Jerry was one of those guys, he was like an advisor, but he was the guy who, like, train everybody on guns or, or taught people, you know, like the type of guns, like he would come and say, Hey, do you know what this M1 is? Do you know what this M16 is? You know, do, do you know these things? Um, he goes into the room and by this time my dad was, um, the way he described it, he was so thin that neither of those guys recognized who my dad was. Hmm. And they say, Hey, what are you guys doing in here? And he, you know, my dad goes, my dad's name is Dua. So my dad goes, you know, I'm Dua. And I served under you. And like, basically they had this big group hug. Right. And I think there was just like, Hey, we, you know, we thought you were, you were gone or you were still running around. Um, and so no, I, I just arrived four days, four days earlier. So essentially the, the journey to here was, so they, they get there, Jerry confirms, Hey, you are a soldier. And that's when the process starts to come to America. My dad wanted to go to California first because there had already been some people here in California, um, some relatives, and they gave him two choices, California or Minnesota. And my dad said, I want to go to California. Well, they did the paperwork, and it's like, well, the, the people in California that you say are your, they're only your clans people. It's not immediate family. I see. Yeah, so there's like, we're looking for immediate family. Well, there even though in the Hmong culture, your clansmen are actually much more important than, say, like your sister, even right. Okay. Your clansmen is really, you know, what what you know. When we when we talk about Hmong families, it's all about the clan. So I'm a part of a clan. They're, those guys aren't your they're your clan, but they're not like your first cousins or anything. They're not your brothers, so we can't send you to California. So they get stuck there for seven months. They're in the refugee camps for seven months. And then my mom had a brother, and we also had other clansmen end up in Minnesota. Uh, around that time, the um, there's a couple Christian organizations in um, groups and people in Rochester, Minnesota. This is that's, it's actually where we ended up. Mm -hmm. It was in Rochester, Minnesota, uh, and I we we still keep in contact with those folks today, and we hunt on their land. And I, I had a conversation with them a few weeks ago. And the story from them was, you know, it was just two couples, James and Marie, and then Bill and Sandy, who they like, they were friends and they got together and they say, hey, we want to do something. 
we want to sponsor a family. And their reason was it was just the right thing to do. You know, they knew that Hmong people fought in the war alongside the U.S. and they just wanted to do something out of the kindness of their heart. So they talk to some folks and they, they get together with their um, respective churches and they, they, they say, well, we want to sponsor a family. That family ended up being us. Mm-hmm. So uh, we end up in Rochester, Minnesota, and we had an uncle, my mom's half-brother, as well as some other clansmen up in the Twin Cities. And so we end up in Rochester for um, two years, and then we moved up to the Twin Cities, basically. Uh, what year? So what year did you land here? Uh, 1980. So you're, uh, what, I, six I was, years old? Yeah, a 19, well, I, I was one and a half. Uh, my brother... Uh, oh, I was counting yeah, from, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm counting yeah, yeah, the wrong yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so 75 to 79, I was born in 79, where, you know, we make it to, um, we, we make it to the refugee camp in ni- 1979. I got you. I, I, essentially a year passes and then we end up in Rochester. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Hey, everybody. I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who over recent months I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, They're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. 
working knives for working people, 10% off with the code Meat Eater. That's a good deal. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. Tell everybody about the prohibition on um, eating animal hearts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you're going to like this. Um, so, Hmong people, um, before the introduction to Christianity, so, you know, we talked a little bit about earlier about um, French influence in Southeast Asia, um, the like some of the very first non-Hmong people uh, that non-Asians um, that Hmong people came in contact with were like French missionaries, okay. like priests that introduced um, Hmong people to Christianity. I grew up Catholic. I was telling Corinne this, and for the longest time, I didn't know why, but but I grew up Catholic. Um. So the traditional religion is, um, you know, they, they call it animist, um, shamanism, mm-hmm. the belief in, in ancestral spirits, right? And so if you were sick, we didn't believe that it was like physically you were sick. You know, we believed that there was, your, your spirit was sick. There was some sort of spiritual imbalance. So you would employ the, the service of a shaman. He would come and, he, you know, he was, he's somebody who can go into the spirit world and, and, you know, and, and, and fix your spirit or, or, you know, or battle the spirit or the evil spirits and ward it off. Right. And that would make you better. Um, well, uh, the story around the, the heart is, um, uh, there was, there's a curse that's laid on, um, a very specific clan group. And I'm a part of that group. Okay. Yeah. So the, so your group is under a curse. Yeah. And and this is legitimate. This is a legitimate curse. So um and the it, the the curse goes as follows. Uh, so the religion, you know, animus shamanism. Um, the story is that there was a, a long time ago there was there was a ceremony going on, and uh, so this was a traditional ceremony. In that ceremony, they, they were cooking up the stew. Right? And this stew in there, there's different versions of this depending on who tells it. But there was a, a ox heart or a, or a cow heart, um, and the shaman or the the, the group of people there um, had asked um, a, a young man or a boy that was nearby to wash the stew, make sure no one messes with yeah, it. Yeah, make sure nobody messes with it. And the the 
the the only significant uh, detail that I remember from what with this 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 young man or young boy was that um, he had a, a mental disability. So I, so you know to be not to be like politically incorrect, but he was he was like um, they they in the Hmong word they they said like he's he was slow, right? Okay. And so um, his his task was to wash his stew. So these guys go off and do the thing, come back, and when they come back to grab the heart, it's nowhere to be found. Got it. And they can't find it in the stew at all. And so they talk it over, and the conclusion that they came up with was, well, we need to use his heart. Sure. Yeah, go on. Um, yeah. <laughs> we, we need to use his because he can't, like, in a way, I, I think he can't defend himself. Like, well. Um, the, the slow boy's yeah, heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're like, not only that, but it, like, I think the idea was, like, what they were asking him, like, where was it? He, like, he couldn't explain, right? So they looked all over, can't find the heart. He must have eaten it. Yeah, so he must have eaten it. And so at this point, if he's, he must have eaten it, then in order to, to make things right, well, we had to use his. And so what they ended up doing was they ended up killing the boy using his heart. So they do that. And as the story goes, they, they, they find the boy, you know, dead. And at the end of this ceremony and everybody's cleaning up, they come back and they're cleaning this pot. Well, hell, the heart was stuck at the bottom of this, this pot, right? And so now a big, a big cover-up Ensues. Yeah, they jumped to some wild conclusions, yeah. <laughs> man. It was so, in there all along. Yeah, so they're you know they're 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 um, conspiring amongst themselves. Like we got to cover this, right? And there's a um, and I don't know this. I don't know the significance of the lady. She might have been like a relative of the boy or the, the young man. Well, she overhears what they had done, so she lays the curse, which is a doozy, right? Basically. The curse is, from this day forth, none of the men in this clan. What is the name of your clan? Um, well, my last name is Yang, so I'm a part of the Yang clan. Okay. Right? So in, in Hmong culture, there's 18 clans. Hmm. So if, you, you, if you're Hmong, you, be, you belong in one of these 18. You recognize by the last names of the person. Uh, the curse is, from this day forth, anybody in this clan, uh, any of the men in this clan, if you eat heart, you will go blind. And, and you've never eaten heart. And I've never eaten heart. Now, to, to be fair, you know, there's 18 clans. And then in those clans, there's sub-clans, right? So we're not all related because, um, you know, depending on where you're from in parts of the country, even though I'm, a, I'm part of the Yang clan, this curse doesn't actually affect all the Yangs. It only affects, like, certain sub-clans who observe it. Got it. Yeah. So as a Hmong person, you grow up, well, one for sure. Um, you can't marry or date somebody of the same last name. And that applies to the entire, like, clan. So so you have to go out of your clan. You have to go out of your clan. Yes. Did you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. But your wife's Hmong. My wife's Hmong. Yeah. But out of clan. Out of clan. She's a Vang. Yeah. And so... And does she hang on to that name? Oh, yeah. She hangs on to it. Yes, yeah. my wife did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Are you sure you know? Not for any good reason. She doesn't have yeah. a good reason like that. Um, um, she said she didn't want to um, have to like update all of her stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
uh, you know, um, mostly the Hmong women hold on to their their to their maiden names. In that um, in that curse, yeah, was it another clan that placed the curse on your clan, or like who? Um, the yeah, that's a good question. I actually don't know. Again, I mentioned I don't know the significance yeah. of the woman. Yeah, like where, but it, came it was from, yeah. so. Um, the, the the so the woman lays the curse and it only affects the men of very specific sub clans right so um going back to learning the things you grew up with number one thing you learn as a monk person don't marry your clan you can't you can't marry because they're considered your sibling they're considered your brother or your sister got it um for me number two is you can never eat heart and you haven't really? and i haven't yes. like any heart of any animal no hearts we have these beef heart pills. Yeah. Well, <laughs> oh, would you eat a beef heart pill? <laughs> right. Yeah. right. Well, it's like desiccated. I'm, I'm hoping. Uh, you know, I've I've never tried, but I'm hoping. I, I'm you know I'm hoping that, you know, like if I were to eat it by accident, you know, I'm hoping like the spirits are okay sure, with man. That. They'd overlook. <laughs> yeah. That. yeah like, well, I didn't mean to. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you know, every time you, you eat heart on you know wherever on this series or whatever, I'm like, dang, I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and my you know my buddies are you know they're like yeah you know. Once we, you know, if we, we ever shoot a deer or whatever it is, we're just, we're going to eat it hard in front of you and you, there's nothing you can do about it, you know? And I'm like, yeah, that's true. And then, you know, at family gatherings, you know, all the women would eat heart. And, would you, will your wife eat it? Uh, she would, yeah. yeah. But um, all the, like, we go to gatherings and all the women be like just making fun of the men because they're just sitting there eating the heart and they're like, you guys can't touch it. Really? <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you a story I heard. Let me tell you a story me and Yanni heard in Missouri. Okay. Okay. Guys, tell us there's no squirrels around right now. <laughs> you know where this is going. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what happened to all the squirrels? The Hmong killed them all. Yeah. Big roving bands of Hmong came down from Minnesota, conducted a massive squirrel <laughs> drive, which I didn't know was a thing. I don't know if they got tree climbing gear or what, but they conducted a massive squirrel drive. Okay. Killed off all the squirrels in order to sell them. And I said, well, who do they sell them to? The other Hmong. <laughs> and I said, so hold on it. So a bunch of Hmong came down from Minnesota, drove to Missouri, conducted a massive squirrel drive, killed all the squirrels, drove back to Minnesota, and sold them to other Hmong. Correct. We got it. Uh, do you hear a lot of this kind of stuff? Well, <laughs> Um, I, 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 I certainly know of Hmong loving squirrels. I mean, squirrels king among the Hmong people, right? Even, even more so than deer. Is that right? Oh oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, did you ever read that article? There's an article in in Harper's Magazine decades ago called Squirrel Hunting with the Hmong. I might have, I might have heard of it. Uh, Yes. Yes. Um, but I'm not going to die. Hmong people love the squirrels. And because they, you know, if you think about it, um, small game was really what they were able to hunt back in Laos. Got it. And so, you know, call it, you know, just having the, 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 the love for the taste of squirrel. And my dad today, you know, he would, he, him and I go squirrel hunting or the only hunting we, him and I go together is squirrel hunting. And because... That's just what they love to do. I think they like to chase. I, I'll be honest and say, from a lot of people that I've talked about, talked to, they're re- they're like just somehow really good at hunting squirrels. Okay. Um, 
And I know there's like squirrel calls out there. I don't know if you guys have ever heard that like they use um lemongrass to to call in the squirrels. Oh no. Yeah, yeah. Um You ever hear rubbing two quarters together? <laughs> I am not, but yeah. I've just been taught to 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 like to blow on lemongrass. Early in the season to make a little distress yeah. call. Oh, yeah. I wish we yeah. had basically, a piece of lemongrass wee, right wee, now. Wee, wee, yeah, wee. basically yeah. you're creating the stress call of of, of baby squirrels. Yeah, like works yeah. when it, it yeah. works when there's still young squirrels yeah. around like yeah. in September. Yeah. Yeah. It brings them all out wondering what the hell's happening. Like a hawk's yeah. got one of them or whatever. Huh. Now I will say I, I don't know a, like I don't see people selling squirrels. I don't, you don't, I don't you've never been on a you never gone down to Missouri for a big squirrel drive? I'm I never know. <laughs> squirrel roundup. Yeah. yeah. A squirrel the great Missouri squirrel yeah. roundup. Um yeah I, I yeah I they they love squirrels. Uh, I don't know about the selling part. I mean in Minnesota I I if you told me where I go buy squirrels I wouldn't I couldn't tell you. Um, yeah the, the <laughs> I, I like I, I should be clear about uh the point I was trying like the point I yeah. was getting at is this idea that um, that it's like, the, and you'll hear this often. You'll hear this frequently. Like I hear it frequently. It's that um, there are these kind of like we like in areas where Euro American hunters and they what they would view as competing. Not like yeah. not like they're all hunters together, but like it's like you're you're like competing against this other entity, this other group. You're competing against mm-hmm. the Hmong. And the Hmong are kind of um, like these sort of supernaturally good hunters, but also don't know what they're doing. They get to be both things. Like they get to not know what they're doing, but also they're super, they have like supernatural prowess. <laughs> and they um, zero regard for hunting rules. Mm-hmm. Kill everything. Eat it in weird ways. Eat weird things. <laughs> I mean, you just hear it all the time, man. I heard it from a guy. I don't want to say who it was. I heard it from a guy. I don't want to say who it was. I I heard it from a guy last year complaining about he doesn't hunt squirrels. He's a deer hunter. Doesn't hunt squirrels. Complaining about how the Hmong kill all squirrels. But you don't hunt squirrels. What do you mean they kill all the squirrels? Uh, Whining. If he was hearing about a dude that looked like him hunting squirrels, he'd be like, that guy's a hell of a squirrel hunter. (laughs) But if it's a Hmong dude, it's like he's killing all the squirrels. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's just like yeah. a thing. Yeah. yeah, you mentioned the Amish earlier, and I'm sure Seth heard it. I heard it in Pennsylvania. It well, was, Seth grew up with it. Oh, hey, yeah. And when we talk about this, we'll get flooded with emails <laughs> starting like the second this drops. We're going to flow with emails being like, yeah, but seriously, the Amish? <laughs> that, uh, that, what's that pump, um, Remington rifle? The 760. 760. Everyone, when I, growing up, everyone yep. called that the Amish machine gun. Yep, exactly. <laughs> if it wasn't that, it was a lever action 3030. Um, yeah. yeah. What? Uh, how much – do you have any insights into how – I mean, from your angle, do you have insights into how, like, where that, that stereotype, like, why that's appealing to people? Do, are, 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 you, are you subject to that? Do people – do like white dudes meet you out hunting and they know you've been up to no good? Do you know what I mean? Is this, is this like a thing you live with or am I telling you things you've never heard before? No, no, no. I, I, I don't think that's, that's uh, new news. Um, it's not new news no, to you. No, um, I, and, I, and in fact, you know, a few uh, weeks ago, I talked to um, a, a liaison from the DNR who he, he was a Hmong liaison. Okay. Long time um, Hmong liaison, retired now. But um, he, he said those same things. And so, like um, he, he said, the same things in what way? In that you know, Hmong people would 
I mean, they hunt in 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 groups. Um, it's it's we, we just go together. That's okay. one. That's an, that's that's something that we brought over from Laos. Is and that, people don't like that. Yeah. Well, I guess I guess not. <laughs> you know. Right. Um, instead of like one buddy, yeah, you go with yeah. more people. But I so mean, having sounds... a hunting camp. Yeah. yeah when you go that... up to deer camp and there's 16 people at deer camp, that's cool. Or yeah, a pheasant yeah, drive with yeah. 30 guys in yeah. South Dakota. Long as it ain't mung dudes. <laughs> mung dudes is yeah. trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, yeah, there's that, right? And then... Um, so that one being that, like groups of people. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Groups. And then uh, we were talking about this. is like, Hmong people go early, man. We... we <laughs> okay. We, we were talking, like, you know, it's it's that whole public-private land, you know, um, kind of uh, conversation, right? Um, on public land, we... I mean, I, I, the turkey season just wrapped up in, um, on the 31st of May and my buddies and I went out at four in the morning. And so we were there and there was nobody around. Um, and to, to say, to answer your question around, you know, being subject to it. Well, I mean, I, I've heard, um, and I'm full aware of it. And then uh, I haven't been hunting long enough to like maybe experience that, um, but in talking to this liaison, you know, he says that uh, Hmong relations with, you know, in, in this case, we'll just say, say you know, uh, the, the whites in, in Minnesota uh, over the years have just have become a lot better. Have become better. Have become better. Oh, that's yeah, good. He, it's like he's like it's it's 10 times much better than, you know, he he's for he first started hunting in Minnesota in 1977. So he was. He was there very early, early on, and he he had he he's like yeah this WMA that we have up in the Twin Cities used to be full of squirrels and now they're the squirrels are all gone because you know he shared it with people and then you know all the mungs went and like, killed all the squirrels. You know? Oh okay, <laughs> so it's legit. Yeah, it's legit. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not gonna deny that. Yeah. I mean I'm not gonna deny we we love you guys squirrels. got onto it. <laughs> yeah. You guys yeah. got under and hit yeah. it hard. Wake yeah. up early, get all the spots. <laughs> yeah. Between yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. We're getting somewhere yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> How? Um, so you knew? Okay. Did your old man come here and, and automatically hunt, or did he not hunt when he came? Um, well, he, uh, not not right away. Okay. Um, you know, I talked about um, uh, Bill and Sandy Selvin, who live in Rochester today. They have eighty acres. Um, I. I Think it's considered like the drift driftless area of of the of Minnesota, southeastern Minnesota. Yep. Um, and they actually introduced my dad to hunting um, in uh, like eighty one, I think is what he said. So shortly after they arrived, because um, Hmong people were, were farmers as well, and she was she was telling me, Sandy was telling me that uh, we got your mom a plot of land so she could farm, and then. Um, that's kind of what they did for a little bit before they came up to the cities. And then I remember my dad hanging um, a buck in um, in our basement uh, after he shot it, so, like early 80s. Uh -huh. And so he didn't hunt right away until, um, you know, like Bill and Sandy and, and some of the people that we were, um, that brought us over here and, and sponsored us, like took him hunting. Yep. Uh, and that was probably hard to get used to, like, if you went from subsistence hunting in the in a like lawless civil yes, war exactly. region of kind of a, of a war torn Southeast Asia, and all of a sudden it's like, oh no, you go down, and you buy this permit, <laughs> yeah. and you follow these rules, and you can't do this, you can't do that, and you allowed this many a day, it's probably like, huh? Yeah, yeah. Th there's a lot of that, right? And 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 again, 
in talking to you know that the uh, our uh, the liaison, he said that there was a lot of that. There was, you know, Hmong people came here, didn't know the language, right? Yeah. Had no concept of wildlife management. Um, in Laos, there there wasn't none. Like you hunted because you were hungry and, you know, you just, you hunted anything that you could see. Got right? it. Um, so coming here, you know, yeah, there, some, for some, for the, for people coming over here, it was something that they, you know, had to get used to. Um, you know, some of the issues he said early on were just language barrier, right? Um, you know, if, and, and, you know, you meet somebody out in the woods, if you don't understand language, sometimes there's issues. Um, but one thing he did tell me was earlier I mentioned about it getting way better. He said the young hunters now understand the laws, understand public versus private, understand, um, shooting light, understand possession limit, understand um, all these, they, they know the rules and regulations as well. And so it's almost like now that, you know, we all understand each other, it's like, it's, it's, it's almost like, it, again, it's gotten like, yeah. way better. You're like a generation removed from the lawlessness. Right. You know, another thing, exactly. that, occurs me, another thing <laughs> that occurs to me about the, the situation you're describing that your family was in in all those years is um, if you imagine just this concept of private and public, if you were a nationless, you're coming at, you're a nationless person, mm -hmm. right? Moving across a landscape where you don't own property, right. you have no government, you know, yep. like you spent your whole life where you're not supposed to be, to, to, according to someone's definition. Mm -hmm. And I imagine it's probably also hard to show up and get like, oh, I see like that fence there. Right. Don't, you know, when your sort of whole existence has been going where yeah, you needed to yeah. go while but, people shot at you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, he, he also mentioned, you know, and, and this makes sense to me, early on we we didn't have anything. And so, you know, you were too busy trying to acclimate to a new country. You were too busy establishing um, uh, maybe a career or going to school or, or um, you know, just making a living here. And so we mostly hunted public lands, right? Yep. And he said, well, no, mo no money to buy land. Yeah, no money to buy land. Yeah. Um, and he said, as through the years, Hmong people started buying boats, right? Started buying land. And over the years, you know, at least what he's seen in Minnesota is that we've kind of just become a part of the hunting community. It's just like, yes, m like Hmong people are just, they're, they're like us, essentially. Got so it. it's got, it, he says, it's just, you know, through the years, it's just gotten way better, especially the, he credits the young hunters for, again, understanding the laws, the rules and, 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 and abiding by those. Yeah. Uh, you, so you're interested, like you got a gun, you have, you know, you bought a gun for personal protection mm -hmm. before you bought a hunting gun. Yes. How did that go? Like, how, how did that come like a, yeah. Were, and you, you were brought up around guns or no? Uh, I was I was not, and uh -huh. so you know, going back to like my relationship with my dad. I mean, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you want to call it like kind of like the Asian relationship is like it's respectable, right? And again, going back to growing up here, my dad spent a lot of his time just providing for us. He worked second shift, so you didn't really have that interaction. Yep. Um, so he never took us hunting, um, and so. Um, it was, 
uh, going back to the, the whole gun thing, like my, my wife's actually a federal officer. She carries, I mean, she, she has, she had issued one, but she just chooses not to, to, to carry it with her. But, um, my, my, why I didn't get into hunting until like a year ago, right. Was I ignorance of, I didn't, I didn't want to handle a firearm mm-hmm. because I equated hunting with firearms, right. Got it. Two. I, the other piece was, well, you need private land. At least the way I was thinking was you need private land in, in Minnesota to, to be able to hunt. So like, it was like those two barriers to, to entry almost. Right. Um, so a year ago this week, um, a, some, a buddy, some buddies, uh, my cousin and a couple of buddies decided to go fishing in South Dakota. Um, you know, if you think about a year ago this week, um, there's a lot of um, unrest in, in Minnesota. You had the murder of George Floyd by mm-hmm. four officers. You had a pandemic going on. Uh, you had Asian um, hate going on. And so here the four of us were like, hey, let's go fishing in South Dakota and, and enjoy some time. And one of the very first questions that came out of that was, which one of us has a gun for, for personal protection? Now, not that we would ever hopefully would never use or need it but like that like that was something that came up yeah for peace of mind yeah for peace of mind yeah and so you know it was a seven hour drive from where we were you know we went fishing in south dakota so we kind of like just talked about it and the one guy who did have uh concealed carry he you know he basically gave us the lowdown right you know seven hour drive you know he of course talked about it and he lived in an area where uh, there was actually looting like in his backyard, right? He's like, Got yeah, it. I, I, I have this because legitimately I, we should be protecting ourselves because all, everything is going on. So it was kind of like this perfect storm of things. And so I came back and I was like, I was just like gung ho on, Hey, you know, I, I need to go get myself a nine milliliter. I'm a contributor to, you know, the, whatever millions of people that bought guns the for the first time. Shortage. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Ammo shortage. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So I contributed to that. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, and that was your first firearm purchase. That was, that was my first firearm purchase. Did you yeah. go get a concealed carry permit? Yes, I did. So right away it came back, got a permit to go purchase and then, you know, uh, took the class and got uh, the license to carry. All right. Um, and so I got that. So, you know, if you, so I got it. So I'm like, and then my, my brother is actually a state trooper in the state of Minnesota. Oh. So he's been hunting for a long time. You guys are heavy law enforcement. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, is that unusual? Um, uh, did, did a lot of Hmong go into law enforcement or are you kind of an anomaly that your wife and brother um, are in law enforcement? I, I don't, I, there's, there's not many, there's some, like I have a first cousin who's in law enforcement. So, I mean, I think, I think. There's 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 some of that, but I it's think. not like a known. It's like a like an industry all infiltrated no, or something. No, yeah. no, no, and you know there's 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 people who are involved with the community. Um, you know, we had like the first Hmong um, state senator a few years back. Oh, okay, and so I think Hmong people are really into you know, like serving. I think serving is the right word. Is that we we like to serve, um, and so. You know, my my brother started like showing me how to use it, and then shortly like shortly after I got my nine millimeter, I. I buy an AR-15, right? Yeah. And it, it, so, you know, two, two, three, five, five, six, and I'm, I like, so, so that was like my first deer rifle. You know, do you have you hunted deer? I have, yes. Okay, yes. Yeah. So, um, when, when you, in, in any case, why I got into hunting, um, 
So I'm shooting this nine millimeter. I'm like, as, at one point I realized, you know what? I hope I never get to use this or have to use this, right? But shooting is fun. Like, you know, the act of shooting and going to the range with my brother, him showing me how to, you know, take it apart. I said, this is kind of fun, right? I'd like to shoot more. And so that's kind of like what spurred the whole hunting, like, itch. Um, now, did you put a scope on your AR or like a red dot on it? I uh, put a red dot on it, yeah. 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 So um, put a red dot in it. And then um, I, I wrote this in the email to you guys too is – Around the same time, my, my buddy um, bought 40 acres up north. And he's like, you know, he he was he just bought it. Um, he said he bought it for hunting. Okay. So one, got over the fear of firearms. Two, hey, we have 40 acres we can hunt on. And that's really what kind of like pushed me over the edge. Right? Was, it, was it something since your dad did hunt, were you interested in, in it as yeah, a kid or you, and you just never had the opportunity? Yeah, it, it was, it was exactly that. It was, you know, my brother and my dad went all the time. I've just like give, never given it the time of day. But you were like, you were philosophically opposed to owning a firearm? Um, or just didn't? Uh, not opposed to owning it. I just like, I was just scared of like physically handling one. Right. Well, once I go, got over that and then, um, Hey, there's, 40 acres of land we can hunt on, right? And so... And these are Hmong dudes you're hunting with. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. My uh, my best friends. Yeah, exactly. And um, so we were all just like kind of got to this, um, like, hey, let's 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 do this, right? And this this was like August-ish, right? So the 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 rifle, deer rifle season was November. And so we like, we started buying all the gear. Um, and, you know, uh, in, in Minnesota, there's a, a north and a south region. So in the south, you can do shotgun only. Um, there's uh, the northern region where you can do like rifle. So I like I, I was gonna go with my AR-15, 223, and they were gonna go with shotguns. And so we got all geared up. And you know that's. Oh, so you're in the rifle area, or the shotgun area. Uh, we're in the rifle. We're okay. in the rifle. Okay. So you can do you can do I whatever. So you were there. in an area where you could do yeah, it. Yeah. You could choose. Yeah. You but could they choose. already had shotguns, so they were going to use yeah, their shotguns, yeah, and you, exactly. you were going to use your AR. Yeah. Correct. Correct. And how'd it go? Didn't tag. Um, <laughs> didn't didn't. Um, yeah. We, Did anybody we, get one? No. Nobody got one. Nobody really? got Did one. You guys see some? We saw. Yes. Well, here's the story. We saw. And so, you know, we saw, but they were, so, I mean, two, two, three, I think for me was, I think 75 yards and under is is kind of what, you know, through our research, right? Shotguns is like the same thing, 60 yards and under. You want to get nice and close. Well, well, you had to, otherwise, you know, again, we wouldn't shoot, right? Well, we started seeing deer and they're like 150 yards away, (laughs) 200 yards away. So after the first week... Um, of hunting, and uh, after the after the week and a half, we saw deer that was way too far away, right? And um, we actually went on a, a separate property, private property that backed up to um, uh, state land, and so we were seeing deer like 150 yards, 200 yards away. Well, I'm sitting there like, I never, I don't have a shot. I don't, I'll never be able to shoot if I have you know, this AR and I'm not knocking ARs, but 
the next day I go and I buy six five three more because I'm like I I gotta go. I mean, you need to go longer, right? Yeah. And so uh, again, you go. I I went from like no guns in June of last year to having two semi and <laughs> well, to having two semi yeah. anemic cartridges. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been like, I got a 223, now I'm going to buy a big ball buster, man. I'm going to buy like a 300 or something. I know that you're going to choose. I know. (laughs) How were you guys, were you guys posted up in stands or how were you like all hunting together? Um, uh, You know, an experience, right? So um, we were. You guys tried to do a squirrel drive, didn't you? No, no, not a squirrel drive. (laughs) Uh, We, 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 we uh, set up in blinds. Okay. Um, And so. Uh, and then we had the one buddy who had, who had a, uh, a stand, mm-hmm. uh, a tree stand, and we didn't really. After the few hundred, the, the, the couple that we saw were like a few hundred yards away. We we didn't see anything, and then and then the season ended, and then my brother and I did go down to Rochester because they they had some um, heavy CWD um, areas down there, so they were trying to get rid of all the deer. So him and I did go down Rochester a couple of days to, to see if we can find some, but we, we didn't run across any, if anything, I, 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 I spooked probably more deer than I could count. Yeah. But you're <laughs> this fall, you're going out. Oh yeah. This, this Guns fall, blazing. This, this fall is, 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 um, you know, I'm doing archery. Um, so I, I've started, you know, sh- shooting, um, bow and arrow and then, yeah, we're we're counting on the days of of um, the rifle season. Yeah. So did you did you end that first season just like an addict? Uh, pr- pretty much. You pretty loved much. it. Yeah, yeah. And and cool. um, I was telling you guys, the turkey season just ended, and I I I'm totally hooked. We're totally hooked on. Did you turkey. get a turkey? We didn't get a turkey. No, Damn. we came close. Come on, we came close. We gotta have you back on. But here's yeah. the thing that's awesome, right? Like he you know, didn't do any of this. I mean, that's why I kind of love this story. Like you weren't doing any of this. And I know you've told me that, you know, you've gone back to reread Mediator articles on the website and gone back to rewatch seasons of the Netflix yeah. show. You gotta cut that out, Corinne, because people are gonna be thinking if you didn't get anything. They... <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Those guys don't know what the hell they're Come talking on. about. No, but I mean like it's not, you know, these are a bunch of guys, they have it in their blood, and it's probably a re- reawakening yeah. right yeah, now. Exactly. But you're just like you keep on getting out there and you're trying to like they're teaching themselves. They no, don't it's like, you know, it's phenomenal, like, man. like Brody took me out last last season. You know, I've got everyone in this office to help show me the ropes and they're just going out on their own. You well, know? I was telling you, I, you know, the turkey season in Minnesota is, is, um, they, they, there's six seasons. So, so if you do archery, you can hunt the entire six weeks or the uh, basically middle of April to end of, end of May. Gotcha. If you're doing shotgun, which was what I was doing, you had to pick one. So, uh, I picked season two, which is six days. If you don't tag, you can actually come back the last week, which is actually 13 days, mm-hmm. and you can use your tag there. So I hunted um, six plus essentially, I think, 10, 11 days. And the last in this, the last season just, just ended. I was going almost every day. And I did like, um, you know, I'd get up at, you know, we were talking about getting there damn early. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Not only you guys. <laughs> <laughs> so my buddy and us would get there at four because the, the, we, we kind of got it down to the, the gobbles will start around five, ten ish, and five o'clock is shooting light um, at, you know, um, five o'clock shooting light. So you, around five, ten, you knew that there was going to be gobble. We, we stumbled. 
onto this like field by luck on on this WMA, and you just knew that the gobbles were gonna could be coming out at like five five fifteen. Did you guys five, run into any other hunters in there? No, we didn't. And I think the oh, reason you got is, <laughs> because we were there first. <laughs> because we were there first. Well, you know, well we we get there at you know I I'd wake. I mean, you can ask my wife this. I got up at three thirty, right? Got ready. Um, drove to the spot by four. Um, so the spot, you know, the field, you had the field and you had the parking lot. And so, um, well, I already have a car and then my buddy shows up, there's two cars there. And, you know, one one of my rules with our, you know, our buddies for safety is that if you drive into somewhere and there's one or two cars, you, you just go find a different yeah. place, right? So we're, we're so we kind of like monopolized yeah, area. you gotta get a license plate as Mung Hunter on it, man. Personalized yeah. plate, vanity plate, Mung Hunter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Back off, so, Mung Hunter. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, so I, I did. So I'd wake up at four, hunt, you know, try to try to catch a gobbler up until like eight, go to work, work all day, and then go to tennis, and then after tennis, I'd go. You know, if there was, you know, if there was still light, I'd. You know, I'd go Get back and hunt again. Yeah, and I did that for like ten days. <laughs> yeah, hunt my friend Robert Abernathy. He likes to get out there. What? I would sleep for an hour, <laughs> just waiting for the birds to gobble. Yeah, I would much just sitting out in the swamp. But like, I don't know why we're out here. But we're out, we're out here basically last night is what it feels like. Yeah, yeah I was telling Corinne, you know, I have so much more appreciation for wildlife, but like for crows, you know, because you know, I I had the crow call with me, but. The crows like would just shot gobble the, the gobblers. They do, they do it themselves. Yeah. yeah, and I'm just like, man, this is this is so cool how they they work off of each other like yeah. that. Yeah. Do you? Uh, <laughs> Corinne mentioned this earlier, like a like an awakening or whatever. Do you? Okay. As you learn to hunt in in America, do you feel that you're joining an American tradition, hmm. or do you feel like you're joining a Hmong tradition? Uh, I I'd have to say it's it's. Um, a little bit of both. I think hunting is in my blood. And, you know, when I rode in, I was like, I, I felt like it's always been a, a, p- a part of me. But I love everything about the American um, the, the American hunter and, and what, what we have here. I just needed something to kind of like, like, like uncover that, I felt like. Um, I a think, global pandemic. Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh, well, yeah. Well, yeah. I blame a lot of stuff on the pandemic. I mean, Ra- racial tensions in a global <laughs> pandemic. Yeah. Nothing like that to get a guy yeah. out hunting. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, a year ago this time, I didn't own a truck. I didn't. I didn't own a boat. I didn't hunt. You know, I didn't own a camper, and I have all those. You know, I do all those things now. You know, not a lot. Of, I mean, you're not alone. Like yeah. a lot of people. Yeah. Kind of rediscovered the outdoors. What kind of boat? Year. What kind of boat you get? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got I got this. Um, it, it's it's a a seventeen foot. Uh, they call it a, a, like a bow rider. So it's not like a fishing boat or anything. It's really so I could pack a lot of people in there and we just go. Oh, nice. You know, boating. oh, like a yeah. pleasure boat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you find it on Craigslist? Oh, uh, Facebook. Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> if it was on Craigslist, Seth already saw it. Yeah, I probably <laughs> saw it. <laughs> no, but they were they were being bought. They were being bought like like crazy. I mean, I I remember looking at this one. Um, like it came on, and that minute I say, hey, I'll I'll take it, but I want to see it first. And the guy just like sold. Yeah, like you know, but it's like. They were gone, you know. So you hmm. mentioned um, going on that fishing trip with your buddies. Had you always fished when, like, from the time you were a kid? 
Um, yeah, off and on. Um, you know, we take the kids. You know, you know I, have, I have three kids. Um, oh, you do? Uh, How old yeah. are they? Uh, uh, 14, 10, and 6. You nice to them? Oh, of course. Of course. <laughs> my daughter, Michaela. My daughter, Michaela, makes... You like that one? Makes, <laughs> wanted to make sure that I said to you that she says hi. Oh, yeah. tell her I said hi. Yeah, because she's actually going to be probably the, be my hunting buddy. Excellent. Um, she's, got, she's already got um, this... Uh, a month ago, I bought her um, uh, a, a, a youth a youth shotgun, and we went out once um, because the the range where we we live we live uh, close to a range, and it's uh, free youth Tuesdays, and so her and I went out. Oh, she so shot it once, probably my fault, but she couldn't take the recoil. Oh, dude, <laughs> wait, here there's a trick. You you probably already know this. Like the first time my daughter ever shot a turkey load was when she was shooting at a turkey. Okay, I'd load. Okay, okay, yeah, target loads. You know, like clay loads. And they just are like, oh, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. And then when they're actually shooting at something, they don't know. I just had her shoot, and we like fake. I put a red dot on a break open 410 for her to hunt turkeys with. And we like, you know, sighted it in, the red dot, for on a turkey silhouette. Then I was like, oh, let me shoot it a couple times. And I put turkey loads in there and made sure we were good on the pattern. And it never had her shoot one. And after she shot at a turkey, never brought it up. Okay. The fact that it's like the recoil is like five times. That was that was my fault because yeah. I, I should have realized that. Get right. her some so, like low brass, yeah. get some low brass target loads. Well, man. she shot it once. She was like, Dad, I, th- I don't think I can do it this season. <laughs> I don't think I can do it this season. So I'm like, okay, okay, well, you know. But, but so, yeah. Uh, okay. People are going to want to get a, people are going to want to get a hold of you. A lot of people are just going to want to get a hold of you. I just, I'm, it's just a thing that sure. happens with, sure. when guests come on. You can choose to, like, I don't want to hear about it. Or you can tell everybody how they might drop you a line or find you on social media and shoot you a DM or whatever that you can ignore or not. I have my, a Facebook page and I have an email. People want to email me. Go, go. They oh, can send it to us yeah. and we can send okay. it to you. Yep. But people, you can, it'll, it'll go like email. this too. People will be like, people will be like, he can hunt my place. I'm telling you, man. Yeah. I'm telling you. Really? Because um, I never get that. No, you won't. <laughs> you won't get that. But he'll get it. Yeah. He'll get it because his story is touching. Brody, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, Brody's like, I was... Born in a very opulent country and had a lot of <laughs> hunting opportunities and grew up hunting. And yeah, people guys. Are like, yeah, people are like, screw that guy, Brody. Email us. <laughs> He's with got the boats coming out. Boats coming out of his ears. He's got. Yeah, we'll but yeah, yeah, people are gonna want yeah to hunt. The, I'm telling you, they're gonna let him. They're gonna I tell him to hunt do. his place. Yeah. Email us. We'll forward the info. I feel like you should come out and hunt turkeys with us next spring, though. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to. I think I'm like I said. I think I'm hooked. Um, uh, you know, hearing that gobble every morning. Um, you know, my, my oh, buddy. It's in your yeah, blood. Yeah, man. yeah. It's it's uh, it's addicting. That Spring explains under. why I went in like ten days in a row, right? You know, you know when you're fishing and you got your and you got tension on your line and the wind blows, and it yeah. makes that siren song. The other day I was telling like we could, we were, it was real windy and you hear woo, you know, in the wind, and I said, man, you hear that. You'll never be able to quit fishing. <laughs> yeah. And he said, I hate that sound. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, maybe we'll need you to do a squirrel drive with us. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, you teach us how to do a big a big squirrel drive that's so effective we kill every squirrel yeah. in Missouri. Yeah. And I will teach you how to um, yeah. we'll teach you how to get turkeys. No, I'm serious, man. I'd like to have you. You should come out and hunt turkeys with us. We'd have a good time. I, I'll, I'll take you up on that. I will. I will. Yeah. Or you know what we could do too is because you, you're close anyways, we'll go hunt turkeys at Doug Dern's. Oh, oh how old's your kid? Uh, she's 10. Here's what we're going to do. Here's the plan. Do not make plans 
for Wisconsin's youth turkey season. Okay. Do you understand what I'm yep. saying? Yes. Yes. Don't tell Doug that I invite you. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna Doug hunt. and I are neighbors, you know, know. neighboring states. We, we love each other. We're going to hunt. My, so your daughter and my daughter and my boy are going to, because Doug's too damn old (laughs) for the youth season. (laughs) I'm too old for the youth season. We got his place locked up for youth season. Locked up. He knows not to let anybody hunt for youth season, (laughs) but your daughter and my two kids are going to hammer it for youth season. That sounds great. Yeah. 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 We'll be there. Yeah. It won't be squirrel season, but we'll do a squirrel drive. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for coming on, man. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Yeah, it was a good history lesson. Thanks a lot. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Hey, guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls because I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand... One of my main turkey hunting buddies. He loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today.